Libby Writes with Brian Scott Libby. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up? I am Brian Scott Rippey. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rights Podcast. Today we have good friend football correspondent Weldon Rodenberg for our uh, spring football recap. Got into a lot of angles of the quarterback battle, where that stands, the spring game, the lack of emphasis on spring games in general, and a bunch of other stuff concerning this football team as it enters a very interesting second portal period in summer before fall camp begins. And of course, the fastest growing segment on American soil, Soccer Corner at the end. So great show. Buckle up. Thank you. Enjoy it. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Glad you asked. So the world's best gaming handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Football season will be here before you know it. Skybox NASCAR is up and rolling Crushing it over there with Mark Harrison, Skybox NASCAR. You have football season right around the corner. You need to check these guys out. If you're into wagering, they're the only way to profit in the long run. You're going to have a picks package to fit your price range. All you have to do is go to skyboxsportspicks.com, type in their promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, and that'll get you 20% off any picks package you purchase. Try it for a day, a week, a month, whatever your preference is. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. They've also got some great merch in the shop there. Be sure to check them out at skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University at Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg if you're a Rippy Rights subscriber. That's rippyrights.substack.com. Get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats right now. It's a three six ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation you're getting there for 20 bucks. Go in there, show Greg proof of subscription. He'll get you set up. Then go find all your own favorites. The best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious cuts of meat, fresh seafood, sausages, tri-tips, and filet burgers are the uh, favorite of mine. Go find your own favorites. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, here is Weldon Rodenberg. All right, we now welcome on Rippy Wright's football correspondent, former Ole Miss recruiting staffer, Weldon Rodenberg. This is our post-spring pod wrap up i probably say this every time we do a pod after we haven't done one in a while but we're already through spring like the next football season will be here before you know it i feel like we did the bowl one not too long ago it kind of does fly by even though it's at certain times you're like damn is it ever going to get here that's definitely true and i think we cover or follow a team that you know is taking the last week of spring off completely so it's <laughs> even less practice than usual uh but yeah i mean it's really coming up i mean it's it's almost may um and then you next thing you know you're in the you know destined meetings and you got media days i mean it's it's coming quicker than you realize let's start right there with what you just said i actually didn't really have a note on this but it was something i noticed last night when i was going back through all of the audio Really from the spring, I'd listened to it intermittently on and off, but I was in the process of writing something on quarterbacks and I found myself, I literally went through two and a half weeks of spring football press conferences. Not that that makes me some hero. I just had a ton of time on my hands and I was like, I need to get to this X part. But I basically listened to all of Kiffin and all the quarterbacks press conferences all the way through. And we'll get to that piece of it in a second. But one of the things that stood out to me was they had more practices available to them and they elected not to use them. Uh, Kiffin mentioned that they're kind of beat up. They can do a lot of stuff in the meeting rooms. They don't really need to have a physical practice. Um, maybe I just had my head up my butt for the entire time I was a beat reporter. Is this a common practice? Does this happen year in and year out? This is the first time I'd ever heard of Ole Miss doing this. I, From what I remember, the spring game was always like the culmination of spring. Yes, and like exactly. That was I just assumed that was the case. 
that was like the last event. And I know they kind of scheduled that spring game around uh double decker weekend and a baseball series and, you know, some sort of event in the spring. So maybe this year was just simply different. And he was like, well, once we play this game, like what's the point of having three extra, you know, practice getting out there and, you know, possibly hurting people. So I, I commend him for like just saying it out loud and be like, look, nothing is going to change this team for, for one week of three, like half padded practices. We'll have some meetings, we'll have some stuff or whatever, but let's, you know, give our staff more time to maybe recruit, maybe evaluate, maybe look at what the portal's doing and less time, you know, just out on the field, you know, going through the motions that is not really going to have a massive effect on anything really, especially if they're really injured, like he says they seem to be. And you mentioned that piece of it about the spring game being the culmination, usually lining up with double decker or at the very least, like a big April Oxford weekend, whether it's a baseball series or, you know, a country music singer singing in your stadium, something like that. I was a little surprised that it happened on an away weekend. I know it's happened in years past to some degree. Like I remember covering a baseball series of Florida one year that was not double deck or anything. It was just kind of a random baseball weekend. And they had the spring game in like the middle of the afternoon. What do you like from your experience, how does the spring game get scheduled? Do you think that was a conscious choice by Kiffin not to have that? How do you think that works? Yeah, I really don't even know. And now that you're saying it, I realize that it's actually on none of those weekends. Yeah. It, <laughs> it was, was an away baseball, baseball series. Like it was nothing. Well, I mean, I think the real, the real situation was you, you simply could not have it with this Morgan Wallen concert deal. So you okay. couldn't have it at the end of next week. Like I know some spring games are. And then I guess, you know, where was Ole Miss last weekend? They were at, I mean, yeah, it, it, it just probably just worked out on the schedule. He probably was like, here's our practice. This is when we'll do this. You know, they'll have some collaboration with ADs and figure out some stuff. It's really not that big of a deal. And I think, you know, the way the game turned out and the way that a lot of these spring games have turned out and, you know, people are trying to find different ways to do things. I heard Hugh Freeze's comments, which were semi-interesting. Um, it, it's just not that big of a deal anymore. And I think the attendance and that whole bragging right stuff is over. I mean, half these guys don't even – this is not even their roster at this point. I mean, they have no idea what's going on, so there's no reason to make too big of a fuss about all of it. Um, I think it was simply just a, a weekend that they found that was apt to do it. Tell you can tell, like we're getting old. The whole spring game bragging rights attendance thing is really a bygone era. I feel like that was a thing at the beginning, particularly when I was in school, uh, or when we were in school, we we're a year apart. Um, but like that type, like the Georgia gets sixty thousand. I remember South Carolina had a good year. Nebraska right fills it up because there's nothing to do there. Like no one cares. <laughs> yeah, and so but like to put that into a real question, you know, you worked under Matt Luke for the majority of the time you were there, and Luke felt like for the majority of the time he was the head coach at Ole Miss, he kind of needed to sell people on his program and the fact that he was in control and to get people to buy season tickets and things like that. Like, do you think, again, part of it's the schedule. You can't have it during this morning long concert. I don't know what the calendar actually looks like. Like the last weekend you can like literally actually have it. But with yeah. all that aside, like, do you think this part of it could have been a conscious choice of Kiffin of just like, hey, I'm past like, let's sell the program mode. We don't have to have it on a huge weekend with a big attendance and all of that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sure that's definitely a Kiffin thing, but I think it's really just a nationwide thing. I, I, this is not a thing for for programs anymore, really. Um, for whatever reason, college football is, has its like own version of the CIA where nothing can be shown and nothing can be fun and no one knows anything about anybody. Um, so, I mean, I mean, Florida stuck there on a Thursday night. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I saw Kiffin tweeting about it and then people were like, oh, no one's scoring. And then I, it took me about an hour until I was like, 
wait a minute, I got to go to work tomorrow. Like, well, why is this not on a Saturday? That was odd too. So it's no, it really is just kind of an, it, like a lack of, em- there's not as much emphasis on the event itself anymore. No, I mean, I was like watching a Cubs game and I saw someone tweeting about Florida. I'm like, it's a Thursday. Like, what What do you mean that they're playing right now? And that, that's even weirder. And I mean, I guess maybe Napier, you know, had, wants to get more out of next week's practice and maybe they need it. Um but, yeah, I mean, it's just a de-emphasis from everybody. I mean, even when Coach Luke was there with us, like, it wasn't really, you know, they, they tried to make it something. Um, but that was really more of like an AD and putting it on a weekend where there's going to be a lot of people in town in order to fill the stadium. And I know it's only like, you know, three years ago, you know, 2019 or whatever, whenever that was. But a lot has changed that since then. Um, but the mindset of a lot of the coaches that I've been with and around, it, it, it's really never been that big of a deal. It's just interesting to think about how the, all of that's changed in a relatively short amount of time. Like you've, I feel like for almost a decade now, you've had it to where. Remember, it used to be like an actual scrimmage. You get two sides, you line it up, don't hit the quarterbacks, and all that. Now it's these modified games. I remember uh, Luke or Freeze had a year where like the offense started or the defense started up like thirty-five nothing, and like could the offense catch them? And they've gotten creative with all that. Yeah, if you move away from the scheduling aspect of it. That's one of the things that I think Neil pointed out in his weekend column that I thought was interesting too. In terms of the actual strategy, the spring game, Kiffin did want to make it kind of fun and entertaining. Like, I don't think the fact that each side scored 50 points was an accident. It's clearly a controlled setting. Uh, it was funny listening to him on the broadcast for the piece of it. I did watch uh, him talking about how he was tongue in cheek pissed about how they were supposed to be pretty vanilla, but both coaches were too competitive. And so they're calling stuff they didn't necessarily want to see on TV, but it did seem like there was some sort of concerted effort to make it somewhat exciting beyond just a mundane scrimmage that clearly the concept has gotten stale in general across college football. Yeah. Which is a good thing. Like why it should be fun. You know, it should be fun for the kids. I I think Kiffin's done a great job of like, you know, they do that little player draft, which I mean, I'm sure is like a mock draft. It's really Kiffin and them probably splitting up everybody, but they split up the staffs too. So they get into it and it's kind of like a good uh, morale booster more than like an actual evaluation of what's going on on the field. And I mean, the evaluated can be up to us, which is, you know, still slightly silly considering that the game was, 53 to 52 or whatever. And like, there was no defense um, on purpose, basically from what it looked like. Um, but I mean, it was fun. That's all it needs to be. Um, you don't want anybody getting hurt. I mean, you even saw Kiffin, he never like really raises his voice, but he saw someone go down and was yelling on the, on the telecast, like, Hey, like stay up. Like, this is not, we're not doing this. We're not tackling for a reason. Um, and, and throughout the years, you've seen more and more teams do that. And I think the fans, have understood this as well. I mean, there used to be like real scrutiny over spring games and how people played and how the offense and defense looked like. And I mean, I haven't seen anyone anywhere on a lot of these spring games talking about anything, uh, you know, of substance, except for a bunch of, you know, weirdo adults claiming that Arch Manning already sucks because he had a few incompletions over in his first like real scrimmage. So, I mean, a credit to everybody except for Texas fans. Um, so, I mean, that it just is what it is, and that, that's okay. It doesn't have to be anything more than that. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember I was a senior in high school, and it was the beginning of the freeze era, and it was like a big deal that Bo Wallace threw three interceptions in the spring game, and like, this team's going to suck. And like, looking back now, it's like, what an absolutely silly, like, way to look at things. Like, like that it had no bearing on anything. That team won six games that year, probably could have won eight with the really bad roster, and partly because Bo- Wallace was good. But it's just, it's crazy how all of that has evolved. 
there's been some, I would say, mon- mundane storylines in the spring and some interesting ones, none more so than the quarterback battle that we talked about at the beginning of spring. Was it actually a quarterback battle? And after listening to Kiffin and Sanders and Dart talk about it throughout the spring, and I guess to some degree Walker Howard too, he had a couple of media availabilities in there as well. Yep. I'm not sure my thoughts have changed a ton um, about like the whole two quarterbacks they brought in dynamic other than I'll start here. Kiffin was pretty adamant throughout the spring. That's just like, Hey, we're just trying to accumulate the most talent in every position group possible. I thought he had an interesting answer. I, I can't think it was one, one about a week ago where he's like, you know, everyone talks about like competition. Well, that's not just for QB one competition throughout the room makes everybody better. I think he used the last dance in Michael Jordan and was like listening to him talk as an example. And so I guess if my, if my opinion or some thoughts or possibilities that'd be open to, if that is shifted, it is probably that I don't make a ton more of adding Spencer Sanders on top of Walker Howard than Kiffin Shirley just wanting to get as many good quarterbacks in at one time as possible and worry about the rest later. I think I do believe that at this point. Yeah, I've kind of changed my tone on it. I mean, the last time we were on here talking about it, I think it's just maybe not seeing them play is like the, the mystery of it you know, it was still there. And while I was watching the game a few days ago to get ready for this, I I kind of have cooled off on my confusion or even like borderline frustration on how they've handled this room. Um, I think it all makes a a ton of sense. Uh, I think when you get these guys out there, you know, there was nothing last year that could not have been improved upon in the quarterback room. So he decided that one, we need two more anyway. Um, so this guy, you know, whether it's the only place he could have gone and talking about Sanders or whatever, uh, it made a lot of sense to bring him in. Uh, and then Howard, I mean, yeah, it was hard, pretty hard not to look good. In fact, it would have been a little bit weirder if he if he looked bad in the spring game. But he's clearly stepping up and giving being given real reps. Um, I don't know if my mind has changed on who the starter is going to be, but I do have my semi conclusion on it after watching the spring game, like you said, it's not, there's no real like huge takeaways, but I do think Spencer Sanders looked really healthy um, for the first time, which is, I mean, was kind of the crux of a little bit of my confusion and frustration was like, if this guy can't compete, why is he here? But he looked a lot better. He looked spry. He looked like he made quick decisions. And I really do think it, it comes down to, between those two and even simpler than that, I think it comes down to one thing in that if Jackson Dart, if, if he can't complete uh, a deep ball on shot plays to open receivers, he will not be the quarterback. Spencer Sanders will be. Uh, I think it really comes down to that. If he can do that, he will probably be the starter. But I, I think it's it, that sounds super simple, but with the way this offense is run and the way you saw how it excelled with Matt being able to complete deep balls – to keep defenses honest, especially when you're going to have a, a really dynamic running game again. If you can't complete those shot plays, you just won't play quarterback for Kiffin. Um, I think it was probably the one thing that that Luke Altmaier didn't do well enough is because he just didn't have a strong enough arm. And, you know, he they really couldn't call those plays. Um, you know, he was athletic enough. He was probably just as accurate as Dart. But Dart had the arm, but he just you – know, we saw throughout the season wasn't able to do it. If he can't do it in the fall – I really do think you'll see Spencer Sanders be the starter. If he improves on it, he'll be the starter. That's that's my you know first take analysis for you on that. 
And it kind of goes back like a, for a second, going kind of back to the the logic and the reasoning of like bringing the cup, the two in. One of the things that was interesting to me about the listen to Kiffin speak about it during the spring is like we all got caught up in the well, there's no way all three of them are here in the fall. Walker Howard's not going anywhere. So you're going to run one of them off. But at the same time, I, I guess I imagine if you're from Kiffin's standpoint, it's like, one, they're probably not dumb. They probably know that both of those guys are going to want to be a starting quarterback somewhere next year. But like from their standpoint, you brought him in. Like, who cares? Like, don't you just worry about that down the road? You got him in here. Like, is it really that big? of like, I, I just can't imagine that's something they lose sleep at night about of just like, oh, well, one of them might leave before the season gets here. Like it, it, that standpoint, it's like, who cares? That that means the one that stayed is probably the better quarterback. Right. I just I, I got caught up in thinking about how's this going to work? Is Sanders going to leave if he loses the job, the grad transfer thing? Where does Dart go? But from Kiffin's standpoint, I imagine it's just kind of like, yeah, OK, we got you know, it. Too. It's probably part of the plan. I mean, they have Howard locked in, which is, of course, obviously very weird considering how all this transfer stuff works. Yeah. They have the most power over him, over anybody. But, yeah, it had to have gone into decision. And we talked about that. Like, they, they had to have known that something was going to break one way or the other with those two guys. Um, but in weird circumstances, you know, they aren't necessarily, you know, guaranteed to leave because I don't really know what Sanders' situation is. And then Dart, we don't know where he's graduating and we're not doing the in-depth uh, analysis on his transcript on this podcast to figure it out. I don't so think we're qualified for that. Uh, no, it is not. No, we're definitely not. So, you know, they might end up with all three of them, but, you know, that kind of goes back to like, where is Howard in this? And from all accounts, he will be the second string quarterback. Um, yeah, I feel so, pretty good about that. Call it an educated opinion. Yeah, I agreed. So it, it'll be a battle for first team. And, you know, I, I thought about coming on here and going like full Stephen A. Smith and say, you know, throw the young kid in there and see what you got. Um, and like deep, deep, deep down, I still might actually believe that. Uh, but that's just not going to be the case this year. And that that's OK. It's not a big deal. Um, and you might end up seeing him anyway, you know, by happenstance of injury or just sheer need. Uh, this thing's going to be between Dart and Sanders. And, you know, to reiterate my point, I really do think it's going to have to do. It sounds silly and stupid and, you know, simplified. But if he can't complete a deep ball and man, it just did not look good in the spring game. You know, despite me saying we're not going to look into it too much. Uh, he, I just don't think he can play for Kiffin. That That's simply that. And I agree with you on the deep ball aspect of it because I think there were probably two main things that played Dart last year in terms of the things that he did not do well, and it's what you just covered, the deep ball one, and decision-making two. And what's been interesting to me about this is Throughout the spring, Kiffin has gone kind of out of his way to praise Jackson Dart's improvement. Um, and by all accounts, and I don't want to preface this 50 times with I'm not there. I don't cover the program anymore every day. I keep up with all the pressers, but I'm not there to watch it, which I don't know what that means. But you can pick up some stuff by talking to, you know, wizards like you and Siski at practice on the sideline. Some days you can pick up little tidbits that you just can't looking through a YouTube or computer screen on YouTube, but it has seemed abundantly clear that Jackson Dart has improved a lot this spring. In what areas? I, I don't really know, but one of the things that Kiffin, I thought, was telling, he got asked a question about Sanders, and then it was like all the quarterbacks two days ago, and he almost immediately pivoted to Dart, talking about his improvement, and then kind of emphatically said he's only turned the ball over once this spring, and that was clearly something that he was proud of. And so when you talk about why they bring all three of them in, why did they bring Sanders in, you know, was it to push Dart? Whether that was the sole reason or not, it is clearly working. This competition in a lot of ways seems to be 
bringing out a better version of Jackson Dart. Now, does that translate to being able to throw a deep ball on the field? I don't know, but it does sound like you're getting a better, more efficient, and more confident Jackson Dart partially because of this competition, and I think that's the three-quarterback thing working by design. Yeah, and I'll take his word for it. I'll believe him when he says that he's improved and he's really been impressed with the decision-making and leadership and all that. I mean, he wouldn't – he's just not the coach to, to bullshit you and coach speak you on stuff like that. But on the telecast, so they had that shot play. It was probably Dart's, like, third series, I think. Uh, Chris Marshall over the middle beat everybody and he missed him. And they showed Charlie on the screen, and I think Richard Cross and whoever else was on it was like, you know, they've been really talking about, you know, trying to you know, improve in this, and this is something they've been working on. It's kind of like the final piece to Dart's evolution. I, like, forgot about that. I was like, you know what? It all, like, to me, whatever, it's weird enough, you know, it, that makes sense. That is the one thing that, you know, consistently last year he struggled with. And I remember a play in the LSU game, so it's – read my mind there. I, in my opinion, it is like the most important play of the season last year in, in a weird way. Cause that game, I know it ended up like being a blowout, but it didn't have to be. And, you know, obviously they score their first three possessions. LSU finally gets one thing right. They score a touchdown and Dart has Mingo over the middle with a guaranteed touchdown. If he completes the ball, and he didn't. And it just felt so deflating and it kept all the momentum back. They give the ball back. LSU scores again. He throws an interception on another kind of fade deep ball, and it was, it was over from there. It's the one thing that I think has frustrated Kiffin with Dart. Some people have, like, said on, on message boards and online, and you see it that, like, Kiffin doesn't like Dart. I don't think that's the case at all. But what I think Kiffin's frustrations with is, like, th this guy is not doing what I'm, I'm trying to get him to do, what I'm trying to get this offense to do. He doesn't have to be a superstar. But he has to, you know, play in the system and complete the balls when the play is schemed up to do it correctly. If you watch Sanders at Oklahoma State, yes, he had similar mistakes to Dart. Uh, he threw, you know, plenty of his own interceptions. But the kid could rip it, and he rips with rips it with like real accuracy down the field. And you saw it again in the spring game. I think he had one to Bullcalter, one to to JJ Henry, and it was like, man, like that's that one piece from Dart. You know, he may do things better than Sanders um, efficiency wise, you know, in intermediate routes and and check downs, understand the offense. But at the end of the day, like score from far is still an aspect despite Levy not being here. And if you can't do it, you, you just can't run this offense as efficiently as it needs to be. And when they said it on the broadcast, I remember that play from last year. It's like I, I understood it all felt like I understood it more and it could all be bullshit. You know, I'm just trying to, you know, get my thoughts out and thinking about why all this has occurred. You know, obviously it's to strengthen the room and yada, yada, yada. But I think it's it has been the missing piece of the offense last year. And Sanders and even Howard, they have it. It's just a matter of if Dart can get it. I think we're just in midseason form already because the first thing that entered my mind when you started talking about the deep ball play was that one at LSU. I want to say there was one against Alabama about midway through the second half. And then there was one, if I, again, I have to go back and look. But when that Auburn game, Ole Miss got up 21 nothing, and Auburn started mounting a comeback, I believe there was one 
where it was like, if you hit that and you get points out of it, like this game's not going to get super weird, even though Auburn's coming back, but they ended up missing it. It led to a punt. And all of a sudden you're like, oh man, we're in a little bit of a dogfight here. Those are huge swing, swing plays in football games. As you pointed out, even though Levy's not here, I mean, I imagine the mantra was still pretty similar score from far. And they really didn't do that last year, unless it was Quinchon Judkins being a superhuman and just, you know, if you know, uh, teleporting through a hole 30 yards down the field, they didn't really have that take the top off element. And I guess to ask you to put your evaluator, coach hat, Ryan Buchanan hat, whatever you want to call it on here. Can you like, how do you improve on a deep ball? We always hear at the NFL level, it's like, well, you can't coach accuracy. Then Josh Allen happened and screwed up everyone's brain. It's like, well, can you, no. how does that work? How can I'll you improve on deep ball throwing? Well, it, a lot of it's timing. Um, that that's one thing. And look, I, I'll give Dart a little reprieve. It's not like they've had, you know, DK and AJ and Lodge and the boys out there um, these, this past season with them, you know, they've struggled with, you know, consistency in the receiver room and they've been rotating a lot of guys in. So it's not like he's been throwing it up, you know, to guys where like they're getting it no matter what it's, it's a lot of reps. It's a lot of timing, but his issue was always just putting air under the football he was like trying to rip the ball 45 yards instead of letting the receiver run under it. I mean, it was consistently, he was overthrowing the ball or way too far out in front. Um, you know, Corral, I mean, obviously he had a cannon arm and he could honestly wait for the receiver to get even more open. But he, I mean, if you remember that throw against Arkansas, the ball was in the air for like, what felt like a minute <laughs> uh, because, and he could let, uh, I can't even remember the receiver called that. Braylon Sanders come down under it. And even again against Mississippi State, he had that huge play at home. I guess that was in 2020. Uh, yeah, I think it was 2020. Uh, I mean, he threw the ball over the safety, and Sanders was able to run past the corner, past the deep safety, and the ball still wasn't to him. Whereas Dart, to his credit, is really good on the back shoulder throws because that's when he can like really reel it and rip it to the back shoulder. It's the over-the-top throws that he's just out in front, over the top. I mean, he's really never under-throwing them. It's just, it's just it just seems like a timing thing or not an understanding of, you know, where the ball needs to actually be put. A lot of times, you're not really throwing to the receiver. You're throwing to a spot. Um, and, you know, I'm not a quarterback coach, but I've been around a lot of them and at least heard them talk plenty. And that's always one thing they've said, especially on, like, when you're on the opposite side of the 50, it's like, yeah, you got a deep ball, throw it towards the pylon, throw it towards the other uh, side of the goal post. If it's on a post route, let the guy come under it. And that's been his biggest struggle. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to kind of speaking to Kiffin had another note from at some point during his spring press conferences that he was talking, he was out in California <laughs> Dart was out there training, I guess. Uh, I think he works with a guy out there, forget the fella's name. Um, and they happened to be at the same place because apparently Knox Kiffin, who's like, a, I don't know, 2030 prospect, was, was he, and, he and Dart were apparently throwing at the same place. So Kiffin shows up and his dad, Brandon Dart's there and Jackson's there and they're both training at the same place. But he said he made a comment to, to Dart's father. It was like, I think Brandon said something about like, you know, he's kind of had a full like off season of stability. He's been able to rest a little bit. He's played a lot of football, been moving around a bunch. There's been a lot of new, it looks like he's throwing different. And it sounded like Kiffin agreed with it. It's like, yeah, this actually does look a little different. He does look like he's throwing the football better. I don't know if that's a rest or a stability or, a, or finally kind of getting your feet under you type of thing. 
But despite kind of the misses in the spring game, that was kind of a window into Kiffin's thinking that he does seem to think that some of that looks different. And just you know, it wasn't even a particularly a deep ball comment. It was just them talking about, yeah, he kind of does look differently throwing the football, which I thought was interesting because I was like, well, what does that actually mean? Yeah, no, I, I I completely understand that. It's kind of like you know when a pitcher if they don't go you know do a ton over the summer, they come back in the fall. It's like they just look fresh. Yeah. They just haven't had you know that wear and tear on them uh, that we see with a lot of these pitchers these days. Um, and that's a good thing. I mean, he looks like he worked a lot on his body. He looks a lot bigger, um, but yet faster, which is exactly what you want. You know, of course, that's the most cliche. Everybody's bigger, stronger, faster. But, you know, for him, he's still a young kid. He really did have to develop that part. Um, and, you know, if you believe Kiffin, I do take him for his word. It's, I mean, it sounds like a lot of the decision-making, intermediary decisions – you know, not throwing the ball in traffic, you know, letting the play you know, develop and making decisions has been great. And that's awesome. That's a huge part of the development. But I do think with just the way this offense is, what they're trying to do, that last key is figuring out those shot plays for him. Because, I mean, if you watch Sanders, I mean, I didn't think there was a whole lot of difference between a lot of the things they did intermediate. I mean, he looked he really fast in the hips, feet, and hands. I mean, he really has a really strong arm with real velocity, um, but he has touch. And that's something that Dart has, like, definitely struggled at. A lot of his balls, no matter where it's going, look pretty similar. Um, whereas Sanders definitely has, you know, a few variations of what he can do. Um, but they have more weapons. You know, they have, you know, at least a little bit more depth in the offensive line, it seems like. So I think a lot of those will work into Dart's favor over the fall, but there's still definitely improvements that need to be made still. Yeah. And it's, 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 I think you're on to something there because if you, if you're just comparing the two quarterbacks, they both move with their feet pretty well. They both struggle with some decision-making in the past. They're kind of the same player. Like it really does seemingly come down to one knowledge and kind of repetition within the offense. And who knows those quick hitting decisions better, which I would assume on the surface you'd give the dart, but then it really just kind of comes down to, like you said, being able to take the top off the defense and the deep ball. And maybe that's what this comes down to. Yeah. I mean, when you're evaluating guys, you know, not to cut you off, you know, a lot no, no, of go time, ahead. Yeah. People, people do it differently, but I, I did learn, you know, later in the career when talking to Levy and Matt Lindsay that, you know, we want to learn and look at and figure out what players can do for you not what they cannot do for you. Now I know we've been talking about some things that dark can't do, but that really, you know, then benefits Sanders. Like what can he do? Well, he can probably do pretty much everything dark can do except for he does have the deep ball. Now he's got the injury. He's got the lack of reps with this offense, but that is, you know, a pretty big factor probably something they were looking at. Like, okay, we have a guy that can do a lot of things, but this is, you know, Sanders can do this. So that's just an added plus for him really. Yeah, and the, on the other pieces of it too, like the timing part of it, it's always interesting. I, I just sat back and thought about it, like over the last couple of days after like watching some of these, and it's like, yeah, no shit. Second guy, second year in the system. Like that, we talk about football being such a rep-driven sport, even though like everyone wants immediate results, but like, like sometimes it takes time, and it takes you know multiple years of stability in the offense. I mean, Matt Corral, you know, from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one, he had his best year after he finally had the same offensive coordinator, same system, that type of thing. Um, you know, even to use a different example, I know Georgia was more talented than everyone this year, but that offense was awesome because Stetson Bennett just knew every wrinkle of it 
and was on the money more times than not and knew the little intricacies of it, despite him, you know, being our age out there being a quarterback. But he'd been in the system that long. Like, it was a better version of Stetson Bennett this year, and it made even Georgia, Georgia even bigger of a juggernaut, even though they weren't quite, I know we're splitting hairs here, quite as talented as the first national title team. But, like, yeah. they were a more dynamic offense because he just kind of hit on everything. I think Joe Burrow year one to year two. The examples are endless. But I feel like we forget about that in this kind of immediate results-oriented business. Like, this transfer is going to come in and be awesome immediately. It's like, well, actually, it takes a ton of time. Like, look at the NFL. Look at any other place. Stability kind of trumps everything. And, you know, the transfer portal, I feel like, has clouded that in some ways. Definitely. I mean, it's why it's such a fascinating season coming up because, like we discussed, there's, like, a lot of quarterback battles around the countries and major programs. And I found myself – this week after watching the Ole Miss game, you know, I flew, I flipped on the Texas one. I just wanted to see, you know, one, I want to see how Arch looked and what, like who are the players over there now, you know, then I went and watched a little bit of Georgia. I'm like, cause it looks like Carson Beck's going to be the quarterback. He looked great, but there's still a lot of, you know, adjustments there. He's been in the system, but he hasn't really played. Um, I mean, I watched a little bit of Florida despite how boring it was, but I was like, who's the quarterback on this team? You know, who are they playing against? And that's not even including, I think, Ohio State had theirs. I haven't watched that. They don't really have a quarterback set in stone. So, I mean, there's a lot of this you're going to see this year where it's like these teams aren't going to be bad, but it might not be as seamless as, as it usually is with a lot of these elite players because there's a lot of battles out there, a lot of unknowns with a lot of really, you know, big-time programs that are trying to compete for real, you know, championships, SEC titles, you know, all the above. Um, and it's not going to be as seamless as it always has been because shit, I didn't know half the numbers on the Ole Miss team. And I, you know, am on this podcast quite a lot. I mean, I literally did not know the majority of the players that were playing defense. I was trying to like watch and see some of them. If I didn't see the last name of their jersey, I didn't even know who they were. It's not because I don't pay attention. It's because there's so many different faces at all these programs and you forget where people are. It's crazy how it's changed. 2018, 2019, I would tell you as I was, and I granted I was still working full time at this point, probably took me two, three games to have to check the media guide or the roster to be like, oh, this number matches up with this name and face, which I think is kind of what you're getting at. Where the last two years in particular, and particularly last year, I'm like four and a half games in the season and I'm being like, that's Cardi Coleman, right? And like, it, it, it's a split second thing. Like, you know who they're playing out there, but like just the sheer numbers to names on the back of the jersey, there's so much new out there. And then we've now entered this phenomenon where guys just kind of change numbers year to year. That's a real kick in the nuts when you're trying to figure out a roster on year to year basis. But you're right. There's so much new that it just, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around. And that's why kind of continuity seems to win out if you can somehow afford to maintain it. But one of the things you brought up was interesting about the quarterback battles around the SEC and around the country. It's kind of fascinating. We've kind of, we're now three years out of the pandemic. So I feel like this last year kind of squeezed out the 24, 25-year-old Hendon Hookers, the Stetson Bennett's, the yeah. older, you know, super senior COVID senior quarterbacks that maybe are on their second program. It's like, how is this guy still eligible? Where I look around the SEC this year, I'm probably I'm I just went through, as you were saying that I tried to go through the top of my head, just blank, blank, blank. Who's the big returner at quarterback in the SEC this year? I guess it's Jaden Daniels and KJ Jefferson are those the two? Like who? who yeah, are the I mean, I, I can. I mean, you can go through it right now. I mean, you go through the West. Alabama's in a quarterback battle. You'll have Jalen Daniels at LSU, KJ Jefferson at Arkansas. Will Rogers will be still be at Mississippi State somehow. Um, 
A&M. But do you like count that? Because I feel like they brought in a guy to push him, and that's a totally different offense. That's almost – he probably will be the starter, but, like, that's not like, a, oh, they got the experience, same system, that type of stuff. You yeah, know? it'll be a completely different system. So it will be, you know, I'm not going to call it a setback, but a similar situation where it's like a lot of things are changing there. Uh, but, no, he'll, I, mean, I think he'll definitely be the starter there. Um, and then A&M, uh, I mean, Max Johnson is still there, but I, I would imagine Weigman will be the guy, but I haven't focused on that program too much. They're still – I mean, they have a new offensive coordinator. With a, and know, he didn't start the year as a quarterback. Yeah, supposedly a new system. We'll see if that's true or not. So, I mean, there's still stuff there. I mean, Florida – I mean, Napier said they're still going to try to bring in another quarterback, so you have no idea what's going on there. Georgia's got Beck, and that seems like he's the guy. South Carolina, Rattler's back. Tennessee, no one really knows who it's going to be, whether it's the, the really good true freshman or Milton. Uh, Kentucky brought in the Devin Leary kid. I assume he'll be the starter, but we really don't know that for sure. Um, I mean, you could tell me I win a million dollars if I could name the starting quarterback from Missouri for next year. I, I will not win the million dollars. I have no idea. That was the guy we were nine games into the season last year. We were like, what's his name again? And he wasn't yeah. that bad, but it's like, who? He no, he really he wasn't that bad. Been rooming together wherever they've been. Yeah, I couldn't tell you. And then, you know, credit to Vanderbilt. They actually have a dude. The, the Swan kid played yeah. pretty well last year, so they have some continuity. But, I mean, that's like – 50% over maybe even more than that of like not totally set in stone situations, whether it's a transfer new offensive coordinator or just completely new, you know, system in general with a new coach. Uh, it's a lot of ebb and flow. And that's not just the SEC. That's kind of everywhere or close it's, to everywhere. It's really just three guys that I would say are like firmly entrenched continuity. Cause again, I'm not counting Rogers because they're running a completely different kind of app state right. system. Yeah. Like what is it? And the only one I forgot was uh, Rattler. Where South Carolina, I don't know what their roster's like. I'll dig into that this summer. Yeah. But, like, they'll probably have a real advantage of just whatever you think of Spencer Rattler. New offensive coordinator, though. So, that is true. Yeah, New offensive coordinator. That. But, like, at least it's the same guy back, like, familiarity. He's played a lot of football. Yeah. Whatever you think of him. And when you were, like, using Spentler, Spencer Rattler on his second school as the example, that kind of underscores the amount of turnover you've had at quarterback in the league and it's it's going to be a fascinating year from that standpoint um and i'll go we'll go back to the old miss piece in a second but like sidebar who, who's your favorite in each division exclude georgia let, let the, to take georgia out of the east like it's kind of wide-ish open yeah i mean i mean i i'm not I have any confidence in Florida as big of a Billy Napier believer as I am. Um, it sounds, it sounds like they have a lot of work to do. I, I would say Tennessee. Um, I think they, the system they run, you know, you can really kind of plug and play there similar to kind of the Baylor, the UCFs. And I have pretty cop, pretty confident uh, and hypo in that group. And I mean, they've really recruited well on both sides of the ball. So it might be new faces and new names, but I do think they'll still be, a really formidable issue over there um, won't be like it was this past year because they lost the two receivers, uh, but they're still going to be really good. And then in the West, I mean, call me a homer. I think LSU is going to be really good. Um, I think they have a chance to be really, really good. Um, but Alabama is still going to be there. Um, they're still going to have a ton of talent, um, but I, I think it'll probably be between those two teams um, and the games in Tuscaloosa this year. That might be the difference, to be honest. Um, but I mean, who knows with AM? Uh, Arkansas seems to be trending downwards despite you know me being a pretty big fan of what KJ Jefferson can do. Um, I, I think Mississippi State 
is like a total wild card. I mean, you have no idea what you're getting from a new system and a brand new head coach. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of open, but I do think there's two pretty clear teams at the top. Oh, we forgot about Auburn. No idea what they're doing at quarterback. <laughs> we talk about Bobby Ashford's still there, right? Yeah, I mean, he's still there. I think they have a, the Holden Grenier. Grenier yeah. is a kid I remember from recruiting who's there. I mean, I, I have no – I mean, Hugh Freeze came out and said we're trying to get transfer portal players at every single position on the team, which I'm sure is a real morale booster in the locker room over there. <laughs> a really smart thing to say um, in this era. Um, so He yeah, loved I mean, the I, backhanded compliment. I never forget one time their mid-sanctions – um, it was right after, I think, either right before the right after the second NOA dropped or something, and it was their national signing day press conference. He was asked about the penalties. He literally said, This signing class is a penalty. I was like, Jesus, man. Like, oh, I, I know I, can't, I remember I didn't even know Neil very well at the time. I looked at him and I was like, Did he actually just say that? And at that time, it, there was no surprise of what Freeze like was gonna say, but I was just like, Wow, that was out there. So yeah, but he's gonna find a guy to his credit as I just bash him. I bet he finds a guy who's pretty productive. What do you think? Like he uh, always probably. seems to have that. They had a third string quarterback that beat up that beat Arkansas last year. To his credit, he's gonna find a guy that's pretty good, I imagine. Yeah, I would imagine so. But this is a league where he has to like actually make a game plan for every game. That is so true. Might not be as easy as you know, getting all the horses ready to go play Arkansas. Um, it'll be a little bit different than that. Uh, but a, a, a little credit to him. Yeah, he will probably figure out how to get a baseline level of quarterback play. Last wrinkle I want to throw on the Ole Miss quarterback situation is that we played out a lot of these hypotheticals, and I do think it's still a bit of a competition. Um, you mentioned, you know, Sanders looked pretty good and looked pretty healthy in the spring game, but it seemed like up until that point, he had been pretty limited throughout the spring because of the shoulder injury. And the thing I kept going back to is like, well, how does a guy win a job if he's limited in spring ball when he's trying to unseat an entrenched starter? I'll throw it to you from this standpoint. Like, how much do you think that matters? Like, if he was healthy at the end of spring, do you think there's a mindset of like, hey, well, he learned the offense and kind of learned what this is going to go like and learned some of the playbook and things like that in the spring, and we don't actually care that he didn't throw a ton? How much emphasis do you put on the fact that he was actually out or limited for a lot of the spring but was healthy for the spring game? Like, how much weight do you think that carries? Uh, I mean, it's not nothing uh, that he wasn't able to be out there, but I brought it up a few times that spring is kind of like a NASCAR pole position. You're kind of getting where you're at going into the fall. And I don't think this quarterback battle, you know, competition or whatever it is, is remotely close to being over. Uh, I mean, Kiffin changes his mind, you know, every hour. So I think that'll still be the case. And as long as he's healthy and ready to go in the fall, um, I hope – that they will make it and decide it then. But I'm not going to put too much on him being out um, because now he is healthy or at least, you know, healthy enough to be out there and playing in a spring game. So clearly something's changed. Uh, but they've got plenty of time to figure this out. And once it comes to the fall, that's when the real, you know, that's when the real competition begins. And the real wrinkle I wanted to get to that we had not explored yet, you mentioned the Walker Howard piece of it. We were like, do you just give it to the kid? I don't think so. I think you may be underselling it a little bit. Let's just say there's a scenario, doesn't matter who it is, whether it's Dart or Sanders, say the loser of the job or whatever departs the program and Howard is QB2. So you only got two of the three that we're talking about in play, one being Howard, the other being the winner of Sanders and Dart. 
If one of them, one of the things that was abundantly clear from the start of spring that seemed most media people were impressed with was this Walker Howard kid can sling it. He is the real deal. He looks pretty awesome. And I know it seems like the plan is, hey, he'll be QB2 quarterback of the future next year. But this is a wins and results oriented business. That's really just the zero sum game. To me, given the way it seems like people have talked about him during the spring, and again, we have a long way to go, it wouldn't seem that crazy that if whoever the starter is does not look great through the first five games. I mean, you've seen how quickly these storylines change throughout a year. The clamors for Walker Howard to just turn the keys over to the kid, I felt would be growing louder. And it's not like he's some 18-year-old that has never been through a college football season before, right? He's got that initial wave of just going through an SEC season, even though he didn't play under his belt. I don't think that's totally unrealistic if whomever the starter ends up being isn't very good. I I could actually kind of see that happening three, four weeks in the season if Ole Miss struggles offensively. What do you say? I think Walker Howard will be playing football for for Ole Miss this year. Um, Okay. I I think that will either be in mop-up duty in like a real full quarter in some of the early games or maybe even the late games. I don't think he will be the starter. Um, I think they have a plan. I think they're going to stick to it. Um, I believe that one of these older guys will win the job and give them the confidence that they're the best person to be put in the position to win football games. Cause that's all that really matters at the end of the day. Um, I just have a feeling you're going to see Howard out there. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they put up 40 points by Mercer in the first half that Walker Howard is playing the entire second half. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they play Tulane and then they play another team. I can't even remember uh, if Howard's getting a lot of snaps in that game. And then, like you said, if Darter Sanders isn't up to snuff or if one of them leaves and the other one, you know, isn't doing what they can do to win football games, I think you're going to see him. Uh, he, I do not see anticipate him being on the bench for the entire season. Um, but that wouldn't be a bad thing if, it, if he is, because <laughs> that means one of the other guys is taking the reins and is playing really good football. Right. And Either that or an injury. Would they, be the yeah, exactly. And you can't account for that. And that's and that's also a factor. Um, but I'm confident that you're going to see him being playing in real snaps this season. Uh, I know made you do this like there. Oh, sorry. I mean to cut you off. No, you you're good. You're good. I was done. No, I was just saying, I know I, I know I've made you do this routine before, but you were around when he was a prospect. What what was kind of the MO on him? It seems again, if the early returns or the early results are are or what like live up to par that LSU might end up regret not keeping him in the program. What was kind of the MO on him? Do you think he is the real deal? Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of Walker, um, you know, throughout his, his prospect days, uh, he was incredibly accurate intermediately had real velocity on the ball. Um, he was athletic enough to make plays with his feet uh, really had great technique and fundamentals, quick hands, quick feet, uh, quick hips, um, he was accurate down the field, doesn't have like a bazooka, you know, it, it's not, you know, corral or it's really probably not even dart from the extent of how far he can throw the ball, but he does a lot of things really well. He's a smart kid. His dad played quarterback, you know, he's got some intangibles when it comes to that. Um, the only thing that that's like slightly concerning is that he is not a big kid and you could see it in the spring game. Like he's just not a physically imposing player, but he just does a lot of things really, really well. I mean, the throw that he made 
to Watkins that I know was out of bounds where he's rolling to his left, flips his hips, and just like flicks the ball 30 yards like accurately was something that neither of the other quarterbacks could do. I mean, you just could, you just don't teach that. You just don't have it. I mean, he's got some real zip and real velocity. Um, like the only things holding him back are he's not that big and he probably can't throw the ball like 60 or 70 yards in the air. Um, and you don't necessarily have to have that. It's not a big deal. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of people trying to, you know, crown him as like better than Eli and like going to be a first round pick. Uh, that's a little bit much for my taste, but I'm very confident in what I've seen this spring that he's going to be a really good college quarterback. Uh, that I know. This is just a random question I thought of. Can you improve arm strength from high school to college? Or is that just kind of an innate thing? Because my dumb brain immediately would just go to get this kid more curls or steroids. One of the two. Can you actually improve <laughs> arm strength in college? Yeah, of course. You can get stronger, more flexible, uh, you know, get stronger in your lower body because that's where a lot of the power comes from when you throw the ball. I mean, pitchers in high school, I mean, I know you talk about I've been bringing up baseball a lot, but I mean, pitchers in high school that are throwing 90, you know, eventually can get to, you know, 95, 96 when they, you know, kind of gather up the fundamentals, understand the technique and the little things. That's where you improve like bit by bit by bit, whether it's strength in different parts of your body. Yeah, he can absolutely get stronger. And it's not like he's a has a weak arm. Yeah. That is absolutely not the case. I mean, he has as good a velocity as any of the three when it comes to like, you know, from zero to 20 yards. He, I mean, you could see the zip on the ball. It's just simply different. Um, but yeah, that you can absolutely improve on that. Now you're not going to grow Josh Allen's arm, <laughs> you know, right. not, some of that gonna, is just innate. Like, yeah, some of that's just, you know, grown man strength. That is just simply different. You know, some guys are far, I mean, that's just not necessarily going to happen, but yeah, you can absolutely improve on that. I don't know what to do with storylines outside of the quarterback position, because it's just so hard to evaluate anyone defensively through the spring. They had guys in, no they had guys out. No There's just no point. And so the thing that I would naturally gravitate to is who these guys that we just discussed are going to be throwing the football to. And by all accounts, um, it seemed like he stayed mostly healthy through the spring that Chris Marshall had a pretty good spring and seems like he brings an element at receiver that they had not had in the past. It's a former five-star recruit. They also bring in Trey Harris, who is a, uh, I believe a super senior, maybe a senior with one more eligibility left from Lafayette. I know we talk about this every year and like, Hey, they need to improve their weapons. They need to improve the wide receiver unit, but it seems like they actually on paper have a little bit more horsepower in that regard versus what can Jordan Watkins do for you? Does Jalen Knox actually exist? Who's this Peyton Wade guy? He was like out there. A little bit more like frontline <laughs> talent there. And it's, I don't know. I would say if the ceiling of this team is reached from an offensive standpoint, it's probably because Chris Marshall was awesome among other things. Yeah. Um, I would agree with that. They definitely have more horses in the stable this year. Um, that's without Aiden Williams, the true freshman who's going to get there, who I'm incredibly high on. Um, Chris Marshall looks like the real deal. I mean, he has got real speed, real length. He's got fantastic body control. He showed it off a few times on some of those back shoulder throws, which is a, a really underrated attribute in like an elite receiver is, is being able to make contested catches, you know, in pretty difficult spots. Um, he looked, you know, every part of what you were expecting and you hope that continues. I know he had some, some issues at A&M and hopefully they can kind of corral that here and keep him on the field and keep him healthy and ready to go. Um, Watkins is, is, is what he is. He's kind of like a, you know, Swiss army knife player. They have him in jet sweeps. They have him in motion. He's got real speed. He showed on that, that kind of bubble screen they gave him where he ran for like 65 yards for a touchdown. 
Um, he's an incredibly serviceable, uh, if not more than that, college receiver. You know what you're getting from him, and that's a pretty valuable attribute to have. He stays on the field. He's got speed, and he can make catches. Like, that's all all you really need. Um, it's kind of behind them. I mean, Trigg was basically playing receiver, um, and he looked really, really good doing it. I think he might even be more comfortable just playing, you know, completely detached and having – uh, the other kid whose name I cannot pronounce, tight end, priest corner, or whatever. Yeah, is that a yeah? Just be that guy down there, him, and then maybe rotate Heath. Just have Trig be a, a matchup nightmare on the outside, which is which is great. Having him, hopefully, he's understanding the offense more, healthy, ready to go. Uh, because he's clearly, I mean, you can see it. Like the, the kid can really play football. He he's incredibly dynamic. Um, you saw some Buckhalter out there you saw some Larry Simmons out there two younger kids JJ Henry's making plays here and there I think you really know what you're getting from him um not a how not a super high ceiling which is unfortunate because I love that kid out of high school um but he can play football for you which is good um and then you know the ghost of Jalen Knox is out there and he's playing he's around (laughs) we saw him we got camera documentation yes he exists and is real um looked pretty good you know looked really fast 27 is a disgusting number for him to be wearing out there yeah that's a tough one that is outrageous that he's gonna be playing football in that number at receiver um but you know he's another guy if he plays the way they think he can play and honestly the way that he looked um during the game I mean that's a huge impact to have another guy because I mean they're playing a lot of snaps with you know a lot of different plays run 80 or 90 a game you need to have you know five at least that you can uh they can trust out there and then we didn't really get to see Trey Harris he's kind of injured so we don't know what there but I watched this stuff out of Louisiana Tech and he looks like a really good prospect a really good player Uh, he needs to get healthy so, I mean, there's just a lot more options out there, which I think is going to really benefit. That's not even including the fact that they're clearly uh, throwing the ball to the running back a lot more than they were last year, um, or at least trying to, or maybe it's just a complete smoke screen for the spring game going into the season. But I think that they will be weapons out as well. Quick sidebar, and I swear I don't throw every question that it pops into my head when you say something, otherwise each pod would be two hours long. You mentioned the body control aspect of it. I'm putting my evaluation hat on here, which is just totally unqualified. The first two guys I thought of were Lodge and pre-injury Treadwell. How far off or on is that? No, I mean, that was – you're 100% correct. I mean, those two guys are about as as good and controlled as you can get. I mean, Treadwell looked like he was never sprinting. He was always in full control. You know, they had so many back shoulder throws with with Wallace and and Kelly and Treadwell was just always there. He was never out of place. It's just the balance and body control in a receiver, especially a big receiver, um, when you know you're confident that if you throw the ball within their catch radius, that they can contort their body, catch the ball with their hands outside of the frame of their you know shoulders. That's massive. And Marshall absolutely can do that. I mean, you saw it two or three times. Uh, on Saturday when he did it. Uh, it's an incredibly it, – it's a trait that not a lot of people talk about, and you don't see it unless you notice it. Um, Mingo would be a kid – you know, I love Jonathan Mingo. Not the best balance and body control of any receiver. I mean, a lot of times when he's catching the ball, he's catching it and, like, immediately falling to the ground um, or can't get his hips turned, shoulders turned for a back shoulder throw. Uh, Malik Heath, on the other hand – was kind of like an opposite guy. He really did have pretty good balance of body control and uh, vision as a receiver. Um, so, I mean, it, some guys have it, some guys don't. 
Um, but you know, having multiple options where you can do different things instead of just run past people is huge. Yeah, I just the, the lodge piece of it. I watched him in a meaningless game against Vanderbilt make a like a one-footed sideline catch that was right in front of me because we were on the field at that point. And it was so like acrobatic, it almost like hurt me to watch the replay. I was like, how in God's name did this guy catch this and keep no, it? yeah. I mean, do you remember the Texas Tech one? Where yeah, was, I do. Yes. Uh, that, I mean, that's outrageous. I mean, that's there's so, many receivers just simply cannot do that. What and, was his deal? He never got a look. I know there was some other, like, I, I don't think he was the greatest interview and in, what just from your semi-professional opinion at that point, what do you think happened with Lodge? Um, I mean, he didn't even get drafted, did he? No, I I, I don't no, think he I ever made a regular season uh, roster. I think he probably wasn't. He was a, probably a product of the system. Um, you know, there was a lot of comments on route running, and I think for him, you know, not being the fastest guy um, or the guy with really the best hands in the world you know, you have to be a pretty elite route runner, um, especially to get open in the NFL. And then, yeah, I've also heard that his interviews went incredibly poorly. Um, and I don't is, mean dog on the guy, but that, I mean, that's a huge thing. There's a lot of really good receivers. You know, if you can't trust a guy in an initial interview with a scout, um, probably when I don't even think they were with GMs. It was simply just scouts. Um, that That's not good. Not good. Well, which goes to show you like how little like of an actual glimpse we get into a guy during media interviews because he was actually kind of personable, like seemed like kind of a goofy, lighthearted kid. And maybe that's what worked against him. I don't know. But I was like, this guy kind of seems like a cool hang. Maybe that's not what they're looking for. But I was just I heard the same thing as you when he came out and I was surprised by that. But getting off of that sidebar, you mentioned the tight end piece of it. Um, one of the trig was productive in the spring game. I think Sanders threw him a touchdown. Um, one of the things that seemingly a I would say a bubbling storyline is they bring in Priest Corn from Memphis. And I think there is some pro prospects for Priest Corn. Uh, our guy, friend of the program, Michael Portner, was kind of after the whole Orlando Brown thing settled and he started reshifting his focus. He's like, What's up with this Priest Corn kid? I keep hearing buzz about him. He's obviously not really talking to a ton of college football people, but it seems like, you know, older guy, um, I think he's about to get married and also has a child. Um, but there seems to be some sort of storyline of like him being a good influence on Trig. I don't know if that's just a competition. Hey, we have another capable guy in here or just kind of a adult in the room with a young player. But that seems to be a little bit of a simmering storyline. What is kind of the value of that? Because they're all kids in college football, but a 22 year old or a 23 year old is definitely not the same thing as a 19 year old. Do you think that kind of you hear about this more in the pros? Do you think that can work similarly in college? No, it definitely can, um, especially when you bring in a guy that's basically, I mean, in some ways, kind of taking your spot. You know, he's the yeah. guy that's now attached uh, to the tackles down there, and they're forcing Trigg to move to a place that's probably more comfortable for him. But at the end of the day, he's still a tight end. Um, but, yeah, you can improve a ton having a guy that's, like, showing you, hey, you want to get on the field? This is exactly what you need to do, and especially for someone that's only been there this spring. And for Trigg to be like, all right, well, this is how it works. This is how this kid blocks. And – I don't really know a lot about pre-scoring, but he sure looks the part. And it's a body type they have absolutely not had at that position. And it's been, you know, a welcome addition to that room. And, yeah, it can absolutely have a great effect on a younger kid who needs to mature a little bit and not have to have Kiffin all over him the whole time. You can have, you know, some some teammate-on-teammate accountability as well. And some of that from a coaching staff standpoint, I imagine, is a little bit comforting and just like – Look, Trigg was a younger guy. It seemed like he kind of struggled to find his footing in a number of different areas. But, like, I imagine 
when you're coaching a bunch of 19 to 20 year old, two year old kids, having that older fifth year senior guy that's played a lot of football that you don't have to worry about him doing any of the little things that you shouldn't have to tell him is a asset that probably is not as common as coaches would like it to be. Like, I like, do you think coaches like Kiffin or whoever else it is enjoy coaching a guy that seemingly conducts himself like a professional? Absolutely. I mean, that's why they've done so well in the portal. You know, that's why, you know, where Kiffin just, he understands these guys more. It's such more of a business transaction, you know, less bullshit, less photos, less nonsense that, you know, it's pretty clear that, you know, he doesn't really care for having a guy come in and be like, I want to play football. I want to go to the NFL. That, that's Kiffin's dude. And to have as many of those guys on this team as possible to kind of take the leadership role, something that was slightly lacking last year, especially towards the end of the season, it's huge. And they can come from any, you know, semblance of positions. You know, it can be offense, defense, tight end, offensive line, um, or even walk-ons. I mean, there's a lot of walk-ons out there playing real snaps. Uh, it doesn't matter where it comes from, but having guys that you don't have to worry about, that you can call plays and not have to be holding their hand is massive, especially coming into a new system. This guy's just going to get it on his own. He's going to do the work he needs to do and have the coaches – you know, lead him in the right direction, but not have to like literally place them there. And that's an element of this offense that Kiffin seemingly likes to utilize when things are clicking on all cylinders, but they just haven't had for the last two years. Really, for most of the time that he's been at Ole Miss, well, everyone will always remember those four COVID games with Kenny Oboa that somehow turned into a full season's uh, worth of service time of being a good tight end when it was really just three games. But, you know, pour one out for our guy, Casey Kelly. He is in the transfer portal. Poor guy. Just could not stay healthy. Um, I would love to get Chad's take on the matter. He was on pardon my take. I don't think you're quite that? lined up, but I would just love to see the spiciness of whatever that take is. But in all seriousness, you know, um, Kiffin is last year at FAU. I was about to say the Harrison Bryant award winner, 42 Harry sent the Mackey award winner, Harrison Bryant. He had a Mackey award winner and Harrison Bryant. And it seems like that's something he likes to utilize in his offense, but he has not had the luxury of that since he's been at Ole Miss for the most part. And now he's got two pretty promising prospects there. No, exactly. I mean, it's a huge part of this offense and he wants it to be a huge part of this offense. Um, I think he was expecting Trigg to take that role this, this past season, uh, but things changed. And when things change, you have to reevaluate the room and reevaluate you know, the position and how you use it and what you can and can't do. And this year, I think they're going to have a few guys that they can throw in there that provide different, you know, skill sets, which is as important as anything because you can't just run the same guy out there knowing exactly what we can do. The defense actually actually look and see like, oh, wait, number zeros, you know, outplaying the X receiver. Like, okay, let's, you know, pay attention to this and see what's going on. I think it's huge. And the other piece of it to wrap up the offensive conversation before we hit uh, a couple of SEC topics and then soccer corner, of course, is the other piece of it is they didn't have the pass catching back element. And Bentley seemingly, by all accounts, even though we did get to see a ton of him, was supposed to be that guy. Of course, he got hurt. At, what was it like a hand injury, if I remember correctly? And just broke his hands. came back saying he's back. He's healthy. Um, I, I imagine that's going to give them an element they didn't have last year if he can stay healthy. Do you think you see any more of that with Judkins? Because remember last year, most of the time, if you were catching a pass out of the backfield as running back, which is something Ole Miss seldom did, it was Zach Evans. It wasn't Judkins. Like, how do you – you mentioned that being potentially more of an element. Do you think that's a Bentley thing? Do you think you see more of that with Quinshawn Judkins? What do you kind of see there so far? I mean, I think it'll be both of them. I mean, if you watch the spring game, I mean, both of them are taking some of those kind of like, I mean, I call them like the Joe Mixon passes from Burrow where he just kind of sprints out on an angle route. Um, I mean, they were doing it all day long for anybody that was in the game, even like the Jones kid and the McAfee kid. 
Um, so I think it'll be a much more utilized part of this offense. And, you know, a lot of the time last year, they had Watkins in the backfield as well, kind of playing as a pseudo running back in the two back sets. Um, we didn't see any of that because it's probably a little bit more specific for game plan. Uh, but it's going to be much more of an element, I would imagine. I think they're going to get Judkins the ball any way they can, especially if they start loading up the box. That would be uh, Jackson Prep grad Matt Jones. And if he doesn't play this year, Kiffin is clearly biased against his parents in the neighborhood <laughs> he lives in. So How about Saints' uh, Fred McAfee's kid? I had to, like, look and be like, who the hell is this kid? I'm like, Is that Wait. who that is? Yes. Interesting. So the Saints, like, a little while back. Uh, I can't – honestly can't remember what position he played. I think he was, like, a special teams guy. But it's, like, a name I knew because I think he was, like, a pretty pretty popular player for the Saints. I was like, who is this kid? Like, McAfee. It's not Pat McAfee's kid. Cause That's what I not. thought, too. I was like, McAfee <laughs> – Pat doesn't have a son that he knows of. So, I didn't no. Uh, I do not think so. But, um, I mean, Riscano is coming in. But to be quite honest, like – I mean, those two kids, I mean, especially Jones, I mean, he's, he's a smaller kid. I actually remember him coming out of high school. He had some some group of five offers and walked on at Ole Miss. Like, I, I used to think they needed to bring in a running back, but they probably are going to have two. They're going to play a shit ton of snaps because that's just how it is. Uh, Matt Jones can probably play five to ten snaps a game if you need him to. Um, I, I mean, LSU starting running back next year is going to be a walk-on. It's not unheard of. Uh, it's not necessarily ideal, but uh, I actually don't think they're going to need to bring in a running back, especially if Riscano comes in, the freshman from Texas, uh, and is a good player early on, which is not always a guarantee, of course, uh, in exact science. But uh, they might just need to use that on a some defensive linemen. I think I think they might be good there. I, I'm with you, and I think you're onto something there because again, like they have two very good running backs. Obviously, Judkins being the spearhead of that. But what if it gets down to it with injuries? I mean, degenerates will always remember Matt Jones. He scored the touchdown on a handoff from J.A. grad Kincaid Dent to cover the spread against Vandy, which no one understood while Ole Miss was still running plays. Um, and maybe Kiffin wanted to cover the spread. I don't know. But to your point, I remember in 2018, Scotty Phillips got hurt toward the end of the year. And do you remember who was actually a pretty productive player for them for the last two games? It wasn't ideal. Isaiah Wooler. Yes, Isaiah Wooler. Another MIS kid. I swear that's not why I brought that up. That's a kid who, after that, never really saw the field again. He became kind of a good locker room guy, six-year senior. Great kid. Had a great story coming out of high school. Um, He, like, survived the tornado. I, I wrote I, You wrote a story before. about it, didn't you? Yeah, that was, like, one of the first pieces I ever wrote for the DM, and I didn't really know what I was doing. And then he starts describing about how, like, literal walls were, like, flying up around him. And I was like, holy shit, we got something here. Um, But, like, to your point, if it gets down to that, one – like you can't plan for something like that, but you can kind of get by with bodies if you have to, if you get past your first two running backs. Yeah. I mean, like, look, if, if Judkins and Bentley get hurt, you're going to be in trouble no matter what. So that that's kind of that. But uh, I mean, it's going to be difficult to find a kid coming from somewhere to be like, Hey, would you like to be the third string running back in the SEC? Like that, that's going to be a pretty tough, uh, tough ass, despite how good they've been in the portal. So um, I was pretty impressed by Jones. Like I said, I remember the kid. He was pretty stocky. Uh, he, he showed me enough to be like, okay, this is your fourth running back, and he's got to play five snaps a game. I, I think they'll probably be fine with that. Last, I, I, I was going to go to the SEC storylines, but I, I, I've neglected my duties here as a part-time podcaster and writer. I told you I watched part of the spring game on Saturday. I admittedly got kind of bored with it, shifted my focus toward baseball. That turned out to be a waste of resources. But I started watching some of it again on Sunday. But when they would score, I would just flip to the next possession. Do you know what I missed? What was that? Is Clean P Costa back? They're, they they had a – Jonathan <laughs> Cruz is gone. 
Did, who was kicking field goals? Is he back? Is he eligible? I assume he is. It was a one-year suspension. Is was he running around? I'm not. I'm not. I hope I, I'm not holding your feet to the fire here. Did you notice who was kicking extra points and stuff? Well, the way I watched this game was on on demand and skipping through everything that wasn't offense and defense. Uh, but I did hear that that Clean P. Costa is back and he is confident in his body now and is able to kick uh, field goals. So that's actually an added uh, a positive uh, because I did for some reason watch the one punt from the punter. That was not good. <laughs> they sorely miss Mac Brown. It is an inferiority complex in the punter room. Mac Brown just deflects on the poor kid ass after a terrible day. He's in the XFL and he throws a 69 yard completion. Did you see Saw that? Completion? Absolutely arousing. It was awesome. <laughs> but like on a like to wrap this up, last series notice like one of the weird credits to Kiffin about how he's good at building rosters is he has a kid go down with like a, a, a failed drug test for a year. And he brings in another dude that just regularly knocked home 50 yarders in Jonathan Cruz. And we all lived through that Luke Logan season in all seriousness. Like they've, they've never had a problem with field goals and stuff under Kiffin, but that be, can become a real disadvantage in a hurry. If you don't have a kicker and Costa to his credit, the year he played was nails as a freshman. So that will help them. It was like the least talk about thing because obviously they lost like five games in a row. No one cared, but that kid just like made every field goal. I think I drunkenly tweeted, is he the most important recruit in the Lane Kiffin era? <laughs> I think I remember you tweeting that. Um, because I mean, it's just impressive. I mean, on the road, at home, I mean, they, they don't kick he was a lot nailed. of goals. And they probably should have kicked more in certain situations. Kid just made all of them. Like, it was wildly impressive. And, man, I mean, college here, shit, pro kickers suck. I mean, the Dallas Cowboys had a kicker that, like, literally, like, I mean, did I tell you the story about in Las Vegas? where they created a bet for the Cowboys kicker, whether he was going to miss a field goal or not. And we're sitting there in Caesars. That's amazing. What are the odds on that? They made it at plus 500 that he was going to miss an extra point or a field goal. Ooh. Five to one odds. He was going to miss one. And uh, first extra point out there, he just doinks it. And like, there's 400 people in the sports book. Everyone is on hands and knees, like watching this and just exploded. But uh, I mean, it's a valuable asset. It's not nothing. I mean, special teams is wildly important. And they had now have a guy that, you know, hopefully is clean and can, you know, when he was playing was a really good field goal kicker. Um, Louisiana made as well. So all positives. Yeah, he really was. I mean, I kept waiting for the story on last year of like, ah, Cruz missed one, they missed Costa type of thing, but he just made literally everything after Costa made everything. So anyway, that is an important storyline. Before we get to Soccer Corner, I know we love ragging on opposing SEC head coaches. We often get uh, accused of ragging on Ole Miss's current head coach, I think unfairly. But we had a couple spicy storylines from over the weekend. I will start with everyone's favorite college football coach. I haven't, I admittedly have done no research and haven't read into this. But Jimbo Fisher the other day apparently clapped back at reporters and was mad that the media can dish it but can't take it. I, I, I don't know what that is about. I mean, that speaks like a man who is not long for this world when you're in the spring and you're like, well, I can't criticize you. You can criticize me. It's like, do, do you know how this works? Like, like yeah, what are you doing? So, so I saw that. So we obviously had like the hilarious mishap of like basically like kind of saying that he was still going to call the plays with Petrino and then like walked it back about five seconds later in the, the spring pre-spring press conference. Now I did see a tweet from somebody who like shared the entire video of this little like supposed spat 
Um, I don't really think it's as big of a deal. I know this kind of ruins your question and the fun um, as much as we both laugh at AM. I, I actually don't think that that was that big of a deal. I think Jimbo was so like just comically unfunny that it just came off like it was like a real thing. I don't think it actually was. So you think he was kind of actually being tongue in cheek, but because of the situation there, they're like, and because of his just lack of ability to seem like personable in any way, it was like, oh, what's this guy's deal? Exactly. And then obviously, like they have such a cultish, weird media presence there. Like when he was calling out like a real newspaper and saying text. Oh, he fired up the tiki torches. They they run in packs. Yeah, and they were, and everyone was like, "Oh, oh, this like he even understands like a, a Texas will do anything for him. The other ones won't." But I, it, I think it was like trying to be ironic and, and tongue in cheek on a lot of things. Like it just came off poorly because, well, that's how like the majority of the things he says come off. So it, I don't think it's like any you know massive story. That makes a lot of more sense because one of the quotes I read where he was like, "It's the last question. It better be a good question. I don't need no Houston Chronicle questions." I can now see him trying. Sports right. Illustrated is just as bad. Sports Illustrated, you might actually be on to something there. Sports Illustrated is now turning into a bastardized version of 247. But, like, I could see how that's kind of a joke. But, like, no one took it as a joke. Okay. Uh, he's talking a mile a minute. He's impossible to understand anyway. He answers before the question's even asked. I mean, it, he it just came off incorrectly. But I don't think it was that big of a deal. Well, score one for Kiffin. He spent part of the spring dunking on Sokolov again. Did you see that? He ragged on Sokolov the other day about, like, thanking John Sokolov for raising the Grove Collective because of his erroneous report. Yeah, Uh, which is just – Should we get to that? I didn't even think of that. Well, (laughs) let's do it. I mean, I don't want to keep here until 10 o'clock at night, but it cracked me up. The Kiffin – Kiffin's doing the thing again. He had ESPN write a story, I think, in uh, May. It was – or, excuse me, March. It was Alex Scarborough. Um, from ESPN and it came out and it kind of talked about how like his decision-making and how the Auburn saga affected the team. And uh, there was one point in there where he took credit for, you know, none of this with the collective would have happened had this not happened. I was like, wow, that's like extorting. Talk about like the most hindsight, you know, (laughs) looking statement ever. I mean, my gosh. Yeah. And it's almost just like, yeah, I extorted that guy, but he should be thanking me. Look what I've done with his money type of thing. But like, I, I, Without turning this to a rag on Kiffin segment, I don't really mean it to. What do you make of that? Because I do think with the way he's talked about it, he talked about um, some story the other day where he was like, you know, a year ago, some guy next door asked me to take photos with like their prom group. And then now I have a daughter going to prom and stuff like and talked about the Oxford community. And I think I think there is some genuineness to that, despite some of the revisionist history in that article. My whole take on the matter is that's great. I believe him. I don't really have any reason not to believe him that he is grateful for this opportunity and kind of what Oxford has given for him. But talk to me in October when the A&M job opens up or something like that. And again, it, it's it's nice to be wanted. And how you handle that is probably where the 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 gap here is in terms of percent, like in terms of how we interpret Kiffin, right? Like that that to me is what it came down to. It's like this guy's probably genuine about this. But let's see when the coaching cycle ramps up. Does he actually handle this any differently? No, that's exactly true. Uh, I mean, I'm going to take him at his word for a lot of this. I think the story of what was really happening behind the scenes and whatever it will never be known. Why he's not at Auburn, we will really never know. And he can say it's his kids. And I, I think I believe like the large majority of you know him thinking differently and having his kids come to Oxford and going to Ole Miss, I think that is – absolutely true that just obviously is not the entire thing but it's how it got to that point it's not why he made the decision it's how it got to where it got 
Exactly. And he his has just such a lack of understanding. It's not like social cues. It's just how things are going to be perceived, you know, it's social from a different perspective. Yeah. Like his perspective is is so different and it's only his and his uh inability to understand what other people might think and other people might see and feel and hear it is it's just way off and I, we're not bragging on him it's just like all he everybody needs, has flaws i mean freeze yeah, absolutely just, absolutely yeah. and he it it comes off as like slightly hypocritical a lot of things he says um especially when it comes to like the portal and how he handles it um, you know, I remember last year he was like dogging on AM players that were like faking injuries, and he was talking shit about that when like Ole Miss does it more than like any <laughs> other team. It's like he says things and it is it's final and it's fact, and then everyone's like, Well, not exactly, and then he just completely ignores you know that sentiment. All all he has to say, and he will never do it, is I wish you know, I handled it differently. I, uh, I stayed at Ole Miss because I believe we have um, just as good of a chance to win championships here. I like it here. My family's here, yada, yada, yada. But he's not making it that. He's selling his program in a way that he thinks is correct, and he could absolutely be right in the way that he's going about it. It, it just comes off a little odd considering all the things that went down that week of the egg bowl and, you know, the kind of, you know, understanding from at least people who are paying attention that like odds are he was probably going to Auburn until something changed. And like I said, part of that absolutely could be family and having a different perspective on jobs and where he is in his life. Sure. That's just obviously not the whole story. So then when he comes up with these, these pieces that they've been written, it just kind of comes off as like, why are we rehashing this again? I think you think you're helping or like you're trying to like mend wounds with the fan base, which I commend him for trying, but I'm just not a hundred percent sure that people are like that are paying close attention by it as much as he thinks they do. That's what I was going to get to next is like a part of me thought there was like, okay, there at least some awareness there because the fact that that story came out and look, it's not like Kiffin made a good point the other day. When those guys come down for those sit down interviews, it's not like Kiffin's like, here's how I want this to go. That's just not right. No, he's 100 percent right. That is not how that goes at all. No, 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 no. An ESPN reporter is not going to get bull. I mean, unless it's just some sellout who just is going to lap up the access. They're not going to let them dictate exactly how the story is going to go. But which is, but I, that spoke to some awareness that he actually thought he needed to repair men, like, you know, men fences with the fan base to some degree. I thought part of that was a good thing. It was like, oh, at least he realizes this because for the longest time I was like, I'm not even sure this guy realizes it, nor does he care. And that showed at least a little bit that he either knows or cares to some degree. 100%. Yeah. I'm not like, I, I'm commending him for, for making this attempt. I, I am absolutely. In fact, there was a lot of really good stuff in there. I thought the stuff about how, they sell the program and what they talk to these portal kids and recruits yeah. about. I thought that was an absolutely fascinating insight into how they're building this roster and program. Him talking about like, yeah, we're not really going to tell you your family. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing on his part. Uh, Cause you know, every recruit's different. You just never know what the priorities are, but I, he'll say it. And I, I do respect that. I respect the effort. This is not the first story that's come out kind of rehashing and discussing this and trying to put his decision in the light. I just, he's like one, he's like two quotes away from like nailing it. And without those two, kind of what I'm saying, about like, this is where I want to be. I think this job is is good or better. And, you know, he can lie. It's okay. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> he can do it. Um, 
if he just added those in, it would all make so much more sense. It's kind of without those that it kind of feels like it's 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 pretty slightly selfish because it's really just all about him, which is that's what you get when you have him, and that's okay. Uh, but yeah, like you said, you know, I commend him. I'm impressed. He's trying. Um, now let's see if they follow Crystal Ball, fire Crystal Ball in three games, and, and if he can just shut it down immediately. So that we'll, is, let's see if this is all worth it in the long run. Perfectly said, particularly the one two quotes away part, because there was a lot of good stuff in there. But then you get to the part where he talks about how he hand, he thought he handled it like anyone else would handle for a decision that's best rooted. Like, dude, come on. I don't know. <laughs> and then there's more good stuff. And then it's like, well, we've never had this collective if this doesn't happen. It's like, dude, come on. So it, that that's exactly the way it was. Like, I you had me, you had me, you had me, you lost me. And it is what it is. It's it's not any huge deal at this point. You know, he will ultimately be judged on wins and losses. Last thing on this, he did. Uh, I actually happened to catch a piece of the broadcast where he took another pot shot at Jimbo. And then I actually think he did it by mistake because he walked it back. He's talking to cross in the broadcast and Marshall makes a catch and he's, and it's happening in real time. And he says, yeah, well, you know, he came from a place where they're allowed to celebrate every reception where I would like him to hand the ball to the inside official. <laughs> so he could spot the ball on another play. And then like two seconds later, he was like, not any knock on any other program. I'm just trying to point out that we're trying to go fast. And I was like, Oh, where are you? Like, yeah, well, then he did it again. So I don't. Think yeah, exactly. So <laughs> moral of that story is, if Chris Marshall's good, he will score four touchdowns on A and M if he's able. Um, yes, he will make it so. <laughs> yes, that will be. He a- will scheme it up on purpose if that game is is not that close. He will try to get him to score as much as he can. <laughs> Which is going to be incredibly entertaining to watch. That'll wrap it up for the spring. I think we covered it just about everything. Um, last thing I had on the SEC before we get soccer corner, Arkansas apparently got rings for going to the Liberty Bowl. Have you seen this? Uh, I did, yes. W- what's up with that? I, I, look, I'm not one to dump on coaches trying to motivate their players or be proud of accomplishments. I'm not really into that, but that that seems a little weird. seems a little much. What I mean, they went 6-6 six and six, once lost to Liberty Bowl. Do you really need a ring to commemorate that? But my question is, who's wearing that? Nobody. I mean, I don't get it. I mean, I'm totally fine with them giving everyone gives rings for like everything these days. That's fine. Didn't need to tweet it off the official football account. That's probably the best of advice you can give. <laughs> probably opening yourself up to uh to warranted criticism there from any and everybody that is on Twitter, which is just a, a shit show in itself. Um, not that big of a deal. Uh, it is what it is. They want to do it. That's fine. That's a big season for them. It uh, is. It is a massive season for them um, because I think the the kind of good old boy CEO kind of mold has kind of worn off uh, from them pretty lately. And there's man, there's a lot of money in that football program right now, and they expect wins. I mean, shoot, what they've been able to do in basketball, what they've been able to do in wise and baseball, they want that in football. And if they don't win this year, I think they're going to find somebody else who can come in and do it. He's uh, entering that Beal mistake where it was like, this is kind of good early on, but like, this is it. Yeah, no, it's, it's a big, big, big year for them. Um, you don't want to talk about baseball here? <laughs> Not going well. As we record this podcast, Ole Miss has been in a 2-2 dogfight in Jonesboro against Arkansas State. Um, it's a disaster. It's not good. And so honestly, the first season since I've been really following Ole Miss baseball where they've been like legitimately not. They never suck. He's made the NCAA tournament every year, but three entire year. That's his whole thing. And even if they didn't make it, they were in the mix. They never suck. This is a, this is completely uncharted territory. 
Yeah, I mean, when that game was going on and we were kind of tweeting back and forth at each other on Saturday, I was like, I've never seen it. I even think that this Coyne kid's a pretty good player. I think he's got a lot of potential, but I've never seen someone like so not going to get it done in my life. I mean, I just you just knew where that was going from literally the first pitch he threw. Um, and they're not good, and they're they're not going to be good this year. They're not going to make it, and guess what? It doesn't matter. It is so frustrating. I think it's really more frustrating – to fans because the way the football season ended, the way that basketball was a total disaster. Uh, obviously, they ended up hiring Beard. And there's some momentum there. So it's like – and then baseball has just been bad this year. So it's like thank God for women's basketball or like this would have been a really bad sports season overall. I mean, you lost to Mississippi State and everything, which is like not good. Shouldn't be the bar. But when you fall below it, it's definitely not good. So I think that's like where a lot of the pent-up frustration is. It's like there really hasn't been like a stellar anything in this sports season, which has been kind of rare in the past few years with Ole Miss, you know, whether it's, you know, women's golf winning a championship, obviously baseball winning, football going to Sugar Bowl. Uh, so there's been a lot of good. It's just kind of been like a, a something that really hadn't been talked about that much, just a pretty bad sports season overall. Um, I don't give a shit. They won the national championship last year. Mike Bianco is a really good baseball coach. Um, it's not going to happen this season. It's whatever. Um, it's frustrating because they have like real talent on this team. They've had real injuries on this team. Um, Jacob Gonzalez has been a freaking monster, um, but no one else has just played up to up to snuff. And it, it's whatever. That, that's my baseball piece on it. It's it's very little. Um, I'm not you know throwing anything going crazy. I think next year will be fascinating because they lose like everybody. Um, and I think they need to do a little bit looking at themselves and roster building. Um, I think pitching wise, you know, it's one thing not having a lot of depth, but it's also something that when you throw in another right-hander that throws 93 with a slider and a fastball, it's like, yeah, you're bringing in another guy, but is he actually another guy or is he just the same guy, but different? Um, I think they have to look at that a lot. And like, that's, I mean, he's always figured out pitching, so it's hard to really critique the guy. But, man, I remember just watching one game, and I think it was, like, Cross or, you know, whoever does the game. Like, oh, yeah, here comes, you know, Braden Jones. He's uh, mid-90s fastball and a pretty nice slider. Oh, here comes Cole Ketchum. He's mid-90s on a fastball and a pretty good slider for the right-hand side. It's like they're all the same dude. Um, so it just compounds itself, and the guys are like, oh, it's a different pitcher? No, not really. It's It's just actually another really good player, but it's the same stuff. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's it's interesting from the standpoint of one, this team wasn't supposed to be this bad. And what was in, I would say, in frustrating no, no. this part of it was you mentioned the Takoyan aspect. Well, there was no one that was going to be built for that moment and get those outs. And with the injuries, you had two guys Dude, that you felt confident in. <laughs> right. Mitch Morrell, Doherty, who can't do it because he's in a starting role. Mitch Morrell, right. who was not available after closing out the game the night before the one game they won. Yeah. And the guy who was supposed to do it was the guy that he came in for because Mike doesn't trust him anymore in Mason Nichols. So it's like, what what do you do? But this team shouldn't be that bad, and it sets up for an interesting next year. Yes, of course, they won the national title. No talk of Mike Bianco's job security is any in any rational discussion. But it yeah. makes next year a little more interesting because in some ways that was supposed to be kind of the step back if you took a sizable one because they lose everyone, like you said pretty much everyone. They got to hit the portal hard. They got to get a real dude to go pair up with Hunter Elliott and some of the velocity stuff. I agree with me. Chase and I have talked about this ad nauseum through the years. Some of it's a scholarship thing. The 11.7 versus scholarship advantages 
the ones that don't have it seem to struggle with a ton of high velo guys that are starters and just real dudes. And Mike's done a real good job work developing pitchers, developing to get second and third pitches and becoming real guys and finding the Gunner Hoagland. I say finding a Gunner Hoagland. Yeah, that type of guy who's not overwhelming velocity, but is awesome everywhere else and is still a high projectability draft guy. Like he's had plenty of dudes over the years, but you think oh, Rance, Lynn. None of them are like, you know, 97, 98 coming out of high school. And they just don't have that this year. But it makes next year more interesting. But I never thought about it from a bad sports year. It's been a bad sports year with silver linings. Basketball sucked, but you got beer. Baseball sucked, but you won the national title. It's like a like a, like a lingering silver lining. Um, other than, yo, not, things not great. No, no. And look, I, I know enough about baseball to be dangerous, but I'm not going to act like I'm a critic. That's why, you know, you don't bring me on to talk baseball, but I do think it was fascinating. We do talk Ole Miss stuff. And I was just watching that game. Like, man, like I know what's about to happen here. <laughs> and yeah, There's no one who was going to get those outs. Once they no, put a was on, that was supposed to just wasn't going to happen. No, it was not going to happen. All right. Let's, uh, let's get to the fastest growing segment on American soil. It is soccer corner. This might be the most excited I've ever been to talk about soccer corner. And this was probably budding, the last time we did a podcast, but I have now gotten into a regular habit. I, mean, I told you for a while, I'll get up and I'll turn it on on Saturday and Sunday mornings and do stuff around my house. Um, your guy here is now waking up for games. Not like, hey, I'm fascinated to see what this strategy does against this strategy. But like the other day, I was laying in bed on a Saturday and I looked at the EPL slate and there was like two games that started at nine. So I drug my lazy ass out of bed at 830 and then got breakfast to make sure I caught most of the match. I'm kind of getting hooked on this. It's taken a year or so. I don't know where this segment goes because it was supposed to be a satirical segment, but now I'm actually locked into this. Two years from now, I'm going to be critiquing the midfield play of like Watford or some shit. But this comes on the heels of I was watching on Sunday. So that would have been the 16th. I watched, oh shit, who was it? Maybe was it was it Saturday. Arsenal, Arsenal West Ham. No, it was um oh god, where is it? No, it wasn't oh, Arsenal West Ham. It was did man did no did Man City lose over the weekend? No, they did not. They played Leicester. Uh Tottenham oh. lost to Bournemouth. Now the Tottenham, that's exactly what it was. Did you see how that game ended? Uh I did. Yes. That was absolutely nuts. That was insane. It was as Tottenham of a finish as you can get, because I mean Golly, that's such a bad loss for them. It's such a crucial part of the season. Uh, that was a crazy game. They had some crazy games this week. I mean, Arsenal went up 2-0 on West Ham and ended up uh, costing themselves the game because they conceded two in the second half. Um, it, it's getting down to the wire uh, here. And they've been some really, really fascinating games over the past two weeks. For that sure. That time in Bournemouth game was the – I watched it pretty much start to finish. I think Bournemouth gets up like 1-0. I'm learning the terminology – then Tottenham ties it, so it's like, all right, this is probably not going to happen. Then Bournemouth goes up 2-1, to one, so then the entire second half becomes, can they hold on? I would say that Tottenham probably scored around the 70th, 75th minute or so, so it's like, all right, this is probably going to a draw. But then Tottenham just starts getting shot on goal, shot on goal, shot on goal. I don't know if that's the actual term. They scored like the 88th minute. No, it was pretty late. Yeah, okay, so but then for the next three, four minutes, they continue to like basically pepper the opposing goalie keeper or whatever to where it went from like, all right, this is probably going to end to a tie to where it's like all of a sudden Bournemouth is going to be lucky to walk away through a tie. And then all of a sudden they get one possession on that end and the dude just makes an absolutely sick goal. And really? the game ends right there. He scored it with like 45 seconds left in extra time. And it was the most like 
back and forth thing I've ever seen to where it's like there's no shot that Bournemouth is actually winning this. Can they get out of here with a draw to, holy shit, they just won this basically on a soccer version of a walk-off? No, I mean, that's when it can get the most exciting. I call it squeaky bum time, <laughs> whatever it's like. It was awesome. I was like, like walking around my apartment like I, I'm starting to get sweaty here. No, I mean, that's the sport is at its best when it's like back and forth. And that's why the EPL is the best because they have so many teams that play different styles that like – if you start running with teams, I mean, you just never know what can happen. I mean, Liverpool and Leeds on Monday was like, oh, my God, like this is like too much. And Liverpool scored six. But, I mean, it was just back, forth, back, forth. And it looks like a big pitch on the state on, on TV. But when you go to a game, it's like once they're across midfield, it's like game on. I mean, it, it's all you're right. all in. And like, they can do anything. These guys are so talented. So there, there have been some pretty impressive uh, showings lately, not only in that league, but in the Europa and Champions League, uh, which has been going on for the past two weeks as well. All right. To get into the actual table, uh, as the Brits call it, I've uh, looking at the top here. I mean, as much as I just flex my knowledge of watching these matches now, You've uh, Arsenal is four points ahead of Man City. Arsenal has played 31 matches. Man City's at 30. Is it 35 total? Do I have that correctly? How many do we have left in this season? I actually don't know the answer to that question. I feel like I should. Um, we got IT on it right now. Let's see. So so I'm looking at the schedule. So Arsenal has 38 matches. Okay. 38 matches. Okay. That's fine. So happen? still some time left, yeah, but it went from, from the time we last recorded a podcast, it was like Man City's tightened this back up. And then I feel like Arsenal got up like six, seven points. I remember one time looking at it. Now it's yeah. back within four points. Are, who would you favor at this point? Arsenal, Man City, like with seven, eight matches left, if you're up four points, what does that look like from a favorability standpoint and how they're playing? I'm trying to see who they play. Um, oh, shit. Next Wednesday, they play at City. I mean, that that'll probably – they won't decide it, of course, because there's still a lot, there'll still be four or five games left, but that will be like the real turning of the tides. That will be like must watch television. It looks like they play next Wednesday at two o'clock or the 26th at two o'clock. Right. Because uh, just say they enter it four points apart. If Arsenal wins it, you're seven points up with six matches left. And it feels like a big gap to where if Man City wins it, it's like, oh man, now it's one point and Arsenal's probably not holding on to this. Well, yeah, because that not even to mention that City has an extra game in hand. So, like, Arsenal's played 31, City's played 30. So, by that, that time, I mean, they could be one point, you know, between each other um, in the scheduling. So, if City wins, they'll go ahead um, of them with six games left. So, it'll be a pretty crazy back and forth. I mean, it's just them two. Um, and, I mean, it's hard to really say who the favorite is right now. I think Arsenal's had some pretty tough outings uh, I mean, they couldn't be as perfect as they were, of course. And I still think they've been playing like the best team. Um, an advantage to them, honestly, is them getting knocked out of the Europa League, whereas City is still playing Champions League football. So City's going to have more matches on hand. So they're going to have to rotate their players more, and they have to kind of like, you know, decide which games are are really the priorities for them going forward. Whereas Arsenal, I mean, they only have, I believe, they only have EPL games left. I don't know if they're even in uh, – they're out of the Europe, Europa League. I don't know what their FA Cup schedule is, uh, but they're going to have less matches, which is going to be a benefit to them in staying healthy and being fresh. But, man, they have to go to City next Wednesday. If they don't win that one, it's officially in uh, in dire straits for them. 
And you talked about them being such an overwhelming favorite, and not just you. We looked up the Vegas odds in August. Like this would still be a pretty seismic upset. I don't ever have ever seen a team with the in a sports league that was like minus two hundred or whatever it is to win the entire league, like Man City was. This would be a pretty seismic upset if Arsenal pulled this off, would it not? Because Man City was kind of like. I don't even know what to describe it in American football, but like they were the team and then there was everyone else with a pretty large gap. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's them two now. I mean, there was like moments where United was kind of fighting up there. There were moments where it was like, oh, is Newcastle going to hold on to this and like really compete? But it, the, the two best teams have completely separated themselves, um, which is not like a total surprise by any means. Um, but it, it's it's game on for sure. So you started the year just disgracing your beloved Manchester United at every turn. This is way long ago when Ole Miss was playing football games and we're 7-0. But now they're in third, in a distant third. What is the vibe amongst the Man United squad? Is th- Are things looking up? Clearly they haven't bottomed out because the two teams I always compare it to is them and Chelsea for whatever reason. Chelsea's yeah. disgrace. We can get to that in a second. If things well, they're well they're United, again today. Uh, they're out of the Champions League. They got bull rushed by Madrid for the second game in a row. Um, they are an absolute disgrace. We can get to them in a second. Um, United has been – it's been a great first season. Um, you know, they won – You say first season. Do, uh, do, refresh of, team, of the new manager. First do, season. Do we have a midseason sacking? Uh, no, so it happened last year. The, last so the year. disaster started last year. This is this guy's first year, and it just started – No, off. the disaster actually started his first few games. I mean, they were, like, really, really, really bad. Right, okay, that's right. Going towards the end of last year, it was bad, too. But he completely turned it around – um now I, I think they're gonna they're probably gonna struggle down the stretch uh they had a Europa League game against Sevilla last Thursday they're up 2-0 um just absolutely cruising along and then their two best defenders got hurt and then they gave up two goals <laughs> so it was a total disaster uh of like 30 minutes in that game um I, I think they'll pretty they'll hold firm on top four uh, because I think their quality is still just simply better than the teams are competing with. And that gets uh, you to Champions League, correct? Top four? Correct, which is the most important thing. I, I do think the whole dynamic around this club will, will really depend on what happens with the sale of it, uh, whether they actually – That's not the Russian it. oligarch. That's another guy? No, that's, you know, the Glazers who own the Buccaneers and some, okay. other, some other teams own uh, United. They hate them. They're trying to sell the club. They've been delaying it. They have the, you know, two bidders, the guy that owns Enios, uh, the the corporation over there in England, uh, Jim Radcliffe. And then, of course, the um, Qatari overlords potential. Uh, but no one knows what's happening. It, it's been very much under wraps. They've been delaying it. So I think, you know, in terms of the outlook for this club, it will really a lot of it will depend on this summer if they can sell this team influx new money change a ton of things they want to build a new stadium there's a lot of outside influences on the field has been pretty good but pretty injury riddle recently uh but it's you know there's just a lot going on but it's been a definitely a positive season all things considered and so now i'm processing the results of the match i watched on sunday where you mentioned i keep forgetting like top four is champions league that's a pretty consequential loss for tottenham because our, our beloved saudi castle is in the fourth spot by three points that had to be a pretty big swing. I feel like Saudi Castle has been pretty mundane. I know they've been toward the top of the league with that initial surge with the Saudi money. I love good corruption in European sports. But I just feel like I haven't heard a ton from them 
top four would be a pretty good result. And then maybe you kind of look to add more players with the endless amount of cash. And can you actually contend for this next year? Is that kind of the trajectory? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they haven't been playing a lot of, I mean, United beat them in the finals of the league cup so that they have been playing some pretty significant matches, but they've just been kind of up and down kind of mundane throughout the league um, as of late, but they're still very much in it. Getting them in the top four kind of in- increases their salary, increases their notoriety. They haven't played Champions League football in I don't know how long. I mean, it's, it's been a minute, at least from my recollection. It would be huge for them. And Tottenham, I mean, they're in a, just a heap of issues. Um, their manager is, you know, Antonio Conte. Is, he's a he's a, a journeyman who's been all over the place. Whether he'll be there next year, whether Harry Kane will be there next year is kind of up in the air as well. Uh, them getting out of European football would be a pretty massive hit to them. Interesting. So that actually is a big deal, even though when it comes down to it, you have to weigh whether those games actually matter versus uh, uh, Premier League, like you mentioned earlier. Totally different circumstances, though, because when I mean, you're trying to win the Premier League, like every match matters. Um, and especially if you're still in the Champions League. Arsenal just wasn't in the Champions League this year. They ended up getting knocked out of the Europa League. Like, you don't want to do that because you want to win those competitions. I got you. But you play less matches. You know, City, I mean, they've never won a Champions League. They have never won in Europe. It, uh, it's like their big flaw. It's their big thing. They choke every year. So they're going all out on both. That That's just gonna. That's just a fact. They, they will be trying to win every single game they can possibly win. But that means a lot of tired legs, a lot of rotation, uh, in the squad, and it's not an easy thing to do. It's why there's so many different competitions, so many different priorities for different teams. But in Tottenham's case, I mean, that they need to be in top four because they're out of everything else already. Chelsea's in 11th place. For a club like that, how rare is that? Because I think when I think of English Premier League, Arsenal, Manchester United, honestly, Man City was a later one. Um, I think of Liverpool, and then you see them in 11th place. I mean, there's a bunch of clubs that I would never heard of two years ago. Brentford, Brighton, I'd heard of Aston Villa, but still not like the, the blue blood type club. How how rare is it for a club of their stature to get to 11th place? Uh, I mean, it's not impossible, but this is just a, a completely unique and special case scenario with them. Is this the uh, Russian oligarch deal? Is that affecting them? Well, I mean, he he's gone. So now it's it's the American, the Todd Bowley guy who bought the squad and then spent like six hundred million, um, you know, bolstering it through the. So is he a uh, wanker, or, or did he just not had time to get his stuff together? They, I mean, he had to go into the locker room and give a pep talk after the last oh. match they lost to Brighton okay. um, on Saturday. So uh, he probably thought that would work. It did not because they played Madrid at home today in a, in a where go home match in the Champions League. Got their ass kicked again. Uh, they brought in, you know, they fired their coach again. So that the two sackings this year for you. Uh, two. Two. <laughs> two. Third coach um, in a season. Love that. Yeah. So two coaches fired. They brought in legend Frank Lampard, who was the coach before the coach before the coach they fired. So he's in the interim role now in the most Chelsea, you know, soccer way imaginable. Whoa. So, yeah, no, it's a whole ordeal. Uh, they have lost all four games he's been in charge of. Um, they are a disaster. I mean, they are so, 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 so bad. They're boring and they're bad. It's like a really tough combination for them. Um, I don't know where they go from here. Um, now, they might get lucky. Bayern Munich, the crazy Germans who are as good as any team in the world, fired their coach who was a really, really, really good coach. But just, you know, if you don't win every game there, you're like, you know, you're on the chopping block. 
So he probably will end up at Chelsea and will improve this situation. Um, but it's in kind of dire straits for them right now. They suck. How does that happen? Like, I mean, I get it. It can happen. Like, is it, do you feel like this is a one-off or do you like, can Chelsea become like a middle of the club? Honestly, selfishly, I was just like, damn, they're only 12 point, they're 12 points shot of relegation. Like how crazy would it have to get for them to get in like a relegation? I guess that would uh, I mean, that's not happening. Um, but I mean, they're, I mean, for them, the amount of money they've spent, like not playing European football is a, a huge issue for them. I mean, that, that would not be good at all. Um, considering they've, been in the Champions League and shit they won it two years ago. Um, and, you know, just not even being contention, excuse me, for anything is not good for them. What's Liverpool's deal? They're a big club, but I don't feel like I ever hear them talked about with any sort of like actual winning championship mentality. But I hear like I, I knew that club when I didn't know what soccer is. What, what's their issue? No, I mean, they've, they've always they've been really, really good since Klopp's been there. Um, these past few years, they've just had like this weird injury thing. I mean, they've like every midfielder has been hurt. Um, they are owned by Fenway Sports Group. And to say that they are not fans of their owners is an understatement. Um, I don't know if Fenway's biggest priority is Liverpool, uh, when it's obviously the one that they're named after <laughs> uh, in the Red Sox. And uh, they, they've already bowed out of um, the chase for you know, the biggest prize free agent this summer who was thought to go there and Jude Bellingham. Um, who's playing in Dortmund. He's, he's a, a Birmingham kid. He is a freaking superstar that's probably going to cost like 120 million pounds just to get him on your team um and they basically were like yeah we're just not going to do that um and he was kind of, they were like the favorite the whole time they, they've got what's like they're running the red Sox. i mean it literally is incredibly similar to the red Sox. like oh xander bogarts oh mookie betts like we're I was say the red Sox people hate them yeah. <laughs> I mean, so like, I don't know what they're doing, the way they've been managing all of their teams. Um, they just simply clearly don't have enough money or too much of it spread out. But Liverpool um, has had a talent acquisition issue. Um, they've been great at getting kids for cheap that have been, you know, really, really productive, good players for them. Uh, but they need a lot of reinforcements. Their guys are getting old. They haven't been playing as well. Um, they've been better as of late but just incredibly inconsistent, which is why they're at where they're at. And lastly, to wrap up Soccer Corner, my favorite piece, the bottom, the relegation zone. We've had a lot of traction here. Our friends at Wolverhampton, ever since I started ragging on them for not scoring any goals, they're still only like 26 goals, which I think is the second least in the Premier League. There's a bunch of teams tied at 24. They've been just – they're all the way up to 13th. I saw a viral video two days ago. Wolverhampton was playing another club. I think they won the match, and the Wolverhampton fan just went into a sea of the opposing fans and just started throwing haymakers. Like, he wanted everything <laughs> they had and just started beating dudes down. Is that him feeling froggy because they, like, you know, climbed up the ass of the competition? What's going on with them? I, this is I the mean, Portuguese I, squad, right? The Portuguese squad, yes. They got a new manager at some point throughout the season, which is just how it all works over there. And they've been, like, much better in, like, the last two months almost. Um, I think they're pretty firmly out of worrying about relegation. I mean, they're 11 points clear or seven points clear of uh, of 18th um, with as many games left. Like it'd have to be a pretty big collapse for them. Um, so, they, I mean, they're safe. They've been playing much, much better. I think if you look at the bottom six um, with 
West Ham, Leeds, Everton, Nottingham, Leicester, Southampton. That's it's going to be one of those. Or I'll add Bournemouth in there as well, even though that win, I mean, talk about huge. Like changes just, your whole outlook, I guess. Changes your entire outlook on that team. Um, I mean, it's it's competitive down there. Um, and I mean, it's just it, one of these teams. I mean, whether it's Leicester, Everton, Leeds, or West Ham, I mean, that's going to be a shocking um relegation for one of those teams um, and it seems like Leicester they're two points back of the third the last relegation spot so I, I, and I, there's a tie for it so they're two points out of not being relegated they won the Premier League a few years ago I get that was the greatest upset in American sports but that would have to be pretty shocking it would be just with the amount of money they've invested in that club and that squad and the training ground I mean there's some beautiful pictures of like what has gone on over there um that would be a massive massive failure for them and like like I'd always say, I mean, once you go down, I mean, that league in the, the championship league is insanely competitive. It is no guarantee you come right back up. Now, Burnley is showing that that's not always the case. They're already um, going back up with their new uh, their new manager, which is Vincent Company, who was a Man City legend. Um, he's running that show, and they've been really good. So they're coming back up, but I mean, that doesn't all. That's very rarely the case where it's just like, oh yeah, we're popping back. You know, you can get stuck. Out of those bottom ones, uh, you know, it seemed like uh, for a while Nottingham Forest was a bit of a darling. They've kind of come back down to earth there in the relegation zone. Uh, Leeds is dead to me since they fired Ted Lasso. But of this whole West Ham, Everton, Leeds, Leicester, I mean, I won't include Nottingham Forest and Southampton for obvious reasons. What would be the most shocking if they got relegated out of those? I mean, just because of the streak, I don't think Everton's been relegated in like 50 years. I think that would be considered the most shocking. Um, But West Ham, with the amount of money that's been in that club um, recently, and, you know, quite honestly, the amount of talent on that roster – and the way that they've played the past few seasons, just to have like a total clunker like this would be pretty unexpected. Like I would have loved to have seen the odds on West Ham going down this year. They, really? they were probably massive. I would have to guess like okay. 30 to one, 40 to one to go down. And the top three in the championship league come up and the top three go down, right? The, the math computes. So there. it's the top two go up automatically. And the three and play a tournament. The four play like a semifinal final tournament for the last spot, which is like always the most must watch, most fun matches of the year. They show up on ESPN plus. Um, it's just insanely exciting. I mean, just like the intensity, like the stakes or, I mean, it's as good as it gets like sports wise watching those teams. And I mean, there's some, I mean, kind of sh- like Luton town and Millwall, like some pretty shockers there that could possibly go up, which is just like insane. I think I saw an article like Luton town was going to have to invest like $10 million into their stadium to get it up to snuff to even be in the premier league. If they end up advancing, like, I mean, that's just crazy amount of money, but it's what it takes to, to get up there in the big show. Okay. Last thing I have for you on this is the, uh, like Southampton, is that the worst place to be in English, like football lore where it's like, you know you're going down the rest of the season doesn't really matter. I know they're only four points out, but I've watched them. They they kind of suck. Like, is that just the yeah. worst place to be? Or just, is that tails tucked? Like, shit, this sucks. Like, talk to me next year. Basically. I mean, it's, it's tough to even relate to it in sports, like, where that is. It's not like you just miss the playoffs. It's like your whole, you know, franchise, club, life, fans, you know, it all changes so dramatically. And for them – I mean, they're not dead yet. So, I mean, they're going to have some matches coming up. Like, let me see their schedule. Ugh. 
I mean, they, well, they don't win have... a ton. They've only won six the whole year. Six of 31, not a great ratio. Yeah, I mean, you look at they play at Arsenal Friday. I mean, that's a loss. Um, they play at Newcastle uh, next Sunday. And they they finish the season at Brighton versus Liverpool. So I mean, I don't I don't see it. I, I would say they're done, and that that's got to be tough. As we finish this marathon of a podcast, I have to wrap up by asking you to play English teacher. I've been tuning into the announcers. Why do the Brits? What what's the deal with? The, is it just soccer clubs? Why is it like uh, Manchester City have or Manchester United have versus like I don't know the Seahawks have or. Uh, Seattle has something like why why do they switch the verbs is that just a soccer thing do you notice this at all am I making any sense I haven't noticed it but it's probably the correct way to say it (laughs) if I had to guess that is true we probably bastardized the English language but it was just like United have and I was like I think that's supposed to be has and it just drives me nuts and then I listened to some guy on the Bill Simmons podcast who started using the Brit terminology and then he started saying something about football I was like get a load of this asshole I just don't understand why that is the case, but that may be a topic for another day. But it's like United have one of the best things. Like, yeah, I don't United know, but has. one of the one of the best things about the Premier League is the announcers or the, the pundits, wherever you call them. They are. That's just, why MC watches it with me. She loves. British. They are electric. They I are mean, amazing. And they they shit on teams. They're not like you know they don't hold that they they will they will get after them. Oh, they say they shit like what a disgraceful move by so and so. I'm like, dude, this match is 20 minutes in. Like, cool your Jets pal. It's the whole media thing in general. Ted Lasso kind of gets right. They 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 will shit on someone. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's always so funny. And like some of the stuff they say and kind of like the the quick hits they have and like some of the the dialogue and like the cliches they always bring up. Like it, it's just so funny and it's so different. It's like some people are like, oh, yeah, I'll just turn on soccer, keep it on silent. Like, dude, like turn on the announcers. Like we talk in the U.S. about how much we like just praise these people that call football games. None of these guys like really touch <laughs> some of these soccer. They're incredible. Yeah, the way to watch it if you're not interested is to not watch and do shit around that and listen. Like you're, you're ruining half the experience if you don't have the announcers. So Exactly. We'll solve that English mystery another day. He is Weldon Rodenberg. This has been a marathon of a uh, spring this football podcast and British football podcast. I appreciate the time as always, my man. We'll send you back into hibernation. And uh, unless something crazy pops off, we'll talk to you this summer. All right. Sounds good. See you then. All right. That was Weldon. Appreciate his time as always as we send him off into uh, hibernation for the summer. Talk to him. I'm sure at once or twice throughout the uh Throughout the summer before we get to fall camp, maybe an emergency soccer corner mixed in. We got more coming down the pipe for you later this week. Uh, Thanks for listening as always, and we'll holler at you in a couple days.